This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here. Your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Happy Wednesday it is. It's also a National Hole in My Bucket Day. This is the day, you, I guess, you need to be checking your buckets. You never know when you're going to have a hole in your bucket. There's a hole in the bucket. Dear, dear Liza, dear Liza, there's this hole in the bucket. Dear Liza, a hole. Man, Jeff sounds a lot different when he sings. Is that not one of the greatest songs ever? Because it can go on forever. That That's your mark of greatness? It that never can, ends? That can be arranged, by the way. For it to go on forever. Well, it already feels like it has. Absolutely. Hey, um, great show today. Have you guys heard of Donald Trump? Occasionally, yes. He's, Recently? He's in the news lately. Um, but today we're going to be talking about irrational politics because there's some interesting psychology that led to President Trump's uh, election. And everyone, well, yeah, them people are crazy. They're just racist. But there might be some truth. A couple might be crazy and a couple might be racist. But there's other psychology going on. And interestingly, what uh, President Trump was able to pull off was kind of a masterful uh, political approach to this psychology. He just he flew he flew the perfect course that got people to believe that he gets them. And uh, it also tells you how bad people are hurting, right? Because they'll they need they need help. They need something to go, something to change. So today we're going to be talking about the appeal, the appeal of irrational politics. Why irrational politics appeals? Understanding the allure of Trump, with um, with a researcher that's been studying uh, Trump for a while. Also um, today we we're, we got to get to the bottom of the hole in the bucket, and uh, lots of headlines with Donald Trump. As he's back, uh, some people are quitting in his communications uh, team. Personal reasons. Personal reasons. They personally don't like him. They personally have got to get out. He's driving them crazy. And, uh, you know, the dance goes on. I watched Sean Spicer's um, press hearing. Interesting. It was it, Hearing? Well, what do we call it? Press. Cause, Conference. But it wasn't really. May end up in a hearing, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was the beginning of. <laughs> A lot of review of possible hearings. Um, he's it's an interesting. He's got an interesting job. I mean, I think it's got to be one of the hardest jobs around. Because, but he made a really great point. Donald Trump is his best advocate. He's his best voice. Because basically, he was saying because none of us can do it right. Mm. I mean, like Donald can do it. So. That's that's kind of what they're leaning towards is maybe getting rid of the pre- daily press conference and President Trump just speaks for himself. Yeah. Oh, that'd be great. Because then he can't get mad because he said it. Yeah. Well, or bring in Corey Lewandowski nah. that he already had on board and fired once. Uh, anyway, interesting stuff ahead there. We'll get to all that fun. Plus, of course, headlines and uh, more of from the National Hole in the Bucket song. 
Sometime. There's a oh, hole in no, the bucket. I didn't. No, I didn't dear want Liza, it now. Dear Liza, there's this hole well, in you were giving up we'll vibe. Let's just we'll just keep going back to it and see if he's so still singing. Okay. Because yeah. Yeah, Liza sounds familiar too. Hmm. Anyway, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on, my friend? Man with a gun at the Orlando International Airport Tuesday night had been taken into custody after a lengthy standoff in a rental car area. Police said everyone is safe. Orlando police tweeted. Uh, earlier, a police spokesperson said officers responded to reports of a man with a gun in the terminal. No shots fired. She said the incident took place in the rental car area of the airport. David Hess had traveled to Orlando on business and was standing at the Dollar Thrifty rental car counter. A thrifty employee ran in from the garage area and said, There's a guy out there with a gun. Take cover. He has a huge gun. Oh, wow. Hess called 911, was told by an operator there were reports of a man with a gun in one of the rental parking lots. Hess and the other customers went into another garage and hid behind concrete beams. They remained there for several minutes before employees said the suspect was surrounded inside and arrested. Hmm. Wow. You don't want to be in the airport and get you know employees run by saying, he's got a big he's gun. He's got a big gun. I've been there. I've been right where that took place. That's scary. Yeah. I mean, you, somebody could be there with their family. So no, no one hurt. No shots fired. The, wow. The gentleman was... Uh, Having a tough day, it sounds like. Yeah, so I mean, it happens. They're helping him now. Um, unease about white supremacist activities in Portland deepened after the fatal stabbings of two men who tried to shield a young woman from anti-Muslim, uh, an anti-Muslim tirade. And some people worry that the famously tolerant community could see a resurgence of the hostilities that once earned it the nickname of Skinhead City. Wow. The attack aboard a light rail tra- train happened Friday. The first day of Ramadan, the holiest time of year for Muslims. Authorities say Jeremy Joseph Christian started verbally abusing two young women, including one wearing a hijab. Uh, when three men on the train intervened, police say he, the Christian, attacked them, killing two, wounding one. He's Christian, 35, was defiant during his brief initial court appearance on Tuesday, shouting, you can call it terrorism, I call it patriotism. He made repeated outbursts saying, you've got no safe places, the death to the enemies of America, and on and on and on. He'll be in court again June 7th. Wow. So they're hoping that doesn't go on. The mayor there is trying to stop two alt-right protests, I guess, that are planned for the next month or so. He's trying to find a way to block those so that the unrest doesn't continue in the community. Holy cow. Yeah, they're kind of having some uh, civil unrest, I guess you could yeah. say, and they're trying to stop that. So, In lighter news, the world of competitive spellers, hmm. Sylvie Logman. Lamontage? Spell, spell that, please. L A M O N T A G N E. Lamontage. Except I don't think she's French. She is now. She's now French. So, Sylvie, known as a juggernaut, she placed fourth cool. in last year's Scripps National Spelling Bee, ninth in 2015. Last summer, she traveled to California and won the Spelling Bee of China's North America Spelling Champion Challenge, a contest for kids in the U.S. and China. So, apparently, they have a contest and kids from China and the United States wow. go head to head on spelling. Yeah. Just kind of a an alternative contest to the National Spelling Bee. Now that 14-year-old from Denver is no longer eligible to compete in this week's National Spelling Bee uh, that'll be in uh, Maryland, which will be televised on ESPN if you've watched that. Yeah, it yeah. says he turns these young kids into momentary celebrities, mainly because of the sometimes awkward noises they make when they <laughs> lose. But right. Oh. But it's interesting. Sylvie now has gone into consulting. She's known as a spelling bee coach. Oh, really? So she's 14. She's aged out of the spelling bee. So she, because she's performed well, she's consulting 
other contestants who were trying to figure out Holy how to win cow, it. Holy cow, that's interesting. So, I hear that. I hear that those spellers age horribly too. Oh, she's fourteen, but she looks, she looks like, like she's forty-two. 70. Yeah. yeah. What, what do you think the rate for spelling hourly rate for a spelling bee coach is? What was it worth, or what's what is she charging? What what's she charging? A hundred dollars an hour. Two hundred an hour is what she's making. Did she win? No. She, I, she oh. so she finished fourth. She finished ninth in twenty fifteen. Now she's retired, but she's coaching and making wow. two hundred an hour as she's. But coaching I mean, I guess kids. that there's only a few families that are in the running. Right. What do you mean? How many families would pay $200 an hour to have a spelling bee coach? Not sure. But apparently it's a growing business. Wow. See, if I were a parent, I would want to haggle like, uh, you were fourth, so that bumps <laughs> it down to 125 What, do you think you were first? So yeah. says so spelling bee aficionados say a recent surge in competition and a tightening of rules meant to limit co-champions has spawned a demand for younger coaches such as Sylvie, high schoolers or college kids, months or just a few years into their bee retirement, who can pass along fresh intelligence on words to memorize and how to decode bizarre words based on their language of origin. Weird. Did you, speaking of bad words or weird words, did you hear um, about Donald Trump's new word? Yeah, I saw that this morning. Apparently, so he trumped. He trumped out. He uh, tweeted out, despite negative press, Kofi fi. Yeah, I guess. And so nobody knew what Kofi fi was, but it was a mis. It was a misprinted. I mean, he mistyped. Yeah, it was supposed to be conference. Is that what it is? Yeah. Okay. Because when I was looking, no one had actually confirmed what it was. It's a typo. He said it's just a typo. And so it's spell check, it does it. But sometimes. now everything, everyone's going off with pictures of what Kofi Fee means. Like, right. you know, the movie, um, what's the name of that movie where they go? Is there like Reefy or isn't that? No, Reefy. Uh, oh, that's uh, Arrival. So that movie Arrival where they're trying to speak with the aliens from another planet, Kofi Fee apparently was. One of, the words. one of their words. That one is brought up a lot. They use that same one when there was the whole Oscar snafu where the wrong name was read off of the ballot. Yeah. That's <laughs> kind of creepy. <laughs> There's, so they're actually – everyone's out trolling Trump now, joking about how he's got I, the I'd like words. you to stop showing that to me, please. You've got to be careful when you tweet. You've got you to be careful. Especially when you have that many people watching. And somebody made a really interesting point that he's – Donald Trump doesn't drink alcohol. No. He does all – everything you're seeing him do, it's completely sober. It's sober at 3 in the morning. It's amazing. <laughs> um, anyway, so if, you, if you're wondering why everyone keeps bringing up Kofi-Fi or whatever – I don't know how people are pronouncing it. I don't know if it can be pronounced. So it's yeah, got to be an acronym word. for something. That's what people were you thinking. Think so they're so. trying to figure no. that out too. So. It's, just, it's just a mistyping of conference. More coffee? I mean, I'm, I'm solving it for everybody. I saw some short videos of people like typing it in to see what uh, into their phone to see what it would spell check to. Oh yeah, if that's what he did, or you're trying oh, to, you know, wow, yeah, backwards. People care that much? Well, you know, it's an early on a, on a Wednesday. So I have this beautiful granddaughter that all she wants to watch is Moana. Mm. I am Moana. Thanks. Um, you're welcome. And all I do is. <laughs> Is just I, I'm tired of Moana. Yeah, I watched it once. I was good. I've seen. I bet you it, it's got like 150 million views mm. on Vivo on um, what's it called on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And um, 
if I watch it one more time, like, but it's beautiful because she then breaks into song. My grandbaby right. sings, so it's wonderful to hear her cute little voice. Uh, apparently, Kathy Griffin got in trouble. Well, you apparently you're not allowed to take a decapitated image of the president, right? Covered in blood and hold it up. Yeah, That's without getting some. Pushback. Pushback. Yeah. Or a visit from the Secret Service. Like, but who on earth would think that that would work? Man, you can't do anything these days. She did a photo shoot holding a bloody head resembling Donald Trump. You just can't do that. That She's a professional. That would be too far. Yeah. The definition right there. If you get to that point, just know you've gone too far. I mean, that's the point. At what point is it too far? Is it the the minute you're... Holding the head of a president? Yeah. Yeah. Was it a picture or oh. was it like a dummy head? It was a dummy head. Oh, but it, brother. But it looked like him and she like covered it in it's pretty, a red substance. It was pretty bad. It's so pretty bad. How is she in trouble then? Well, apparently, um, you know, a lot of the Trump followers are can't believe it. People yeah. want to boycott everything she does now and it's kind of game on now. It's just interesting – at no point in that process did she think, maybe this is not a good idea. This is why you need your mother around. Because your mother would say, Kathy, put the head down. Put put down the corn syrup As the, and red food dye. I read this this morning. The uh, deputy news director uh, at BuzzFeed kicked out a, a tweet. And he goes, guys, Kathy totally didn't know a picture of a decapitated U.S. president would make people upset. Easy mistake. I mean, that happens. I mean, that happens. Her point was, I'm a comic, I have to push the edges, the boundaries of life, and, you know, I cross the line, sometimes I move it, then I cross it, sometimes I cross it, then I move it. But how is that funny to people that don't support Trump? These are her exact words. I'm a comic, she said, I crossed the line, I moved the line, then I crossed it, I went way too far, the image is too disturbing, I understand how it offends people, it wasn't funny, I get it. That might be why she's apologizing, is because it wasn't. There was a lot of pushback from everyone. This yeah. guy here from the LA Times, he goes, my feed today has mostly been liberals discuss- disgusted by Kathy Griffin and conservatives asking why liberals aren't disgusted by Kathy yeah. Griffin. I mean, I think pretty much universally everybody's <laughs> – and when you see the image, it's just disgusting. It's just bad. There, and there was no real point for it. It doesn't really do anything. But then someone's going to say, nobody ever did that to Barack Obama, but mm. they probably did worse and they other versions of it. They put on Obama. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that I mean, that was old with – Trump, too. I mean, this is how it goes, but I think pretty universal. Everybody's, we, let's just all say now, we can't. So is, can't is, is this just have a head finding boundaries? Have we now found, okay, you don't go that far? Well, <laughs> but it, it's, I think it all depends because people were going far. I mean, there was a sculptor that put naked statues of Donald Trump all over Europe like, well, in six different like places Seattle and San yeah. Francisco and, yeah. Also in bad taste. Again, yeah, that's in bad taste. Too, too. far. Yeah. yeah. So that was probably, I mean, this is just an ever changing line, I bet. Mm. But it's good we're having a conversation because, you know, Kathy went too far. And now we know. And now we know don't do that. <laughs> Anytime you're talking about the death of somebody, I mean, that's a. Yes. You've gone too far. It's a big lesson. It's a lesson for everybody, really. Kids, gather around. Grab your pencil. Take a few notes here. We don't need to pretend to kill somebody in order to get attention. No, no, no. You can get attention other ways. 
be the be the jokester in the classroom. Dye your hair. Dye your hair a funny color. Be the class clown, but don't don't hold up a decapitated head of the sitting president of the United States. Not a good idea. If you're a if you want a career. Okay, little uh, little heads up for you. We'll take a break when we come back. We're talking about why irrational politics appeals. Actually, perfect segue from the Kathy Griffin story. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Many people are questioning the rationality of President Trump's comments, his decisions and promises. Some have even questioned if he's got mental health issues. But is there something about his irrationality that is actually so appealing? And what about his followers? When uh, when President Trump was elected, many people have been questioning not only the president, but who would vote for such a person? And then they take extreme positions like only uh, the biggest racists in the world, the the misogynists, the the bigots would follow such a person. This uh, this irrationality in in politics is it's an interesting world we're living in. Here to speak with us today is the author of the book "Why Irrational Politics Appeals: Understanding the Allure of Trump." is uh, is Mari Fitzduff, and Mari is the author of Why Irrational Politics Appeals. She's also the founding director of the International Master's Program in Conflict Resolution and Coexistence at the Heller School at Brandeis University. Uh, Mari, thank you so much for your time today. Great to be with you, Matt. What an interesting um, read. As, I, as I've been kind of getting ready for this interview, it really does seem like uh, politics has taken a very interesting, almost, I guess the best word is irrational turn, um, and how extreme everything is getting. Talk to us about why why has it gone so crazy? I think one of the things we're, we're learning about, not just in the United States, but also in Europe, I, I come from Northern Ireland, so I've been keeping a good eye on Brexit, as it were, is that we seem as people to be dividing into two kinds of worlds. The first world is probably the world that you, Matt, and many of your listeners belong to, which is a world that extends beyond our own nation, that's very much globalized into the communication technology can bring us, delighted to meet, as it were, other worlds through it, delighted to meet different people from different countries. And others who instinctually don't find that comfortable, they just feel that they don't fare well when they're in company that's very mixed, they feel they don't articulate, as it were, their fears. They feel they're being left out. And I think the, uh, they actually are being left out in many ways because the new jobs that are going are going to the globalized world in terms of the alternative energies, etc., and not to where the big jobs used to be in the Rust Belt of the United States. So it's almost as if there's two things happening in the world at the same time. And this is not unusual because you often find within societies or societies that are actually more worried about moving on and the new and others within it who are more adventurous. It's not that one is good and the other is bad. We actually need both. But I think we have quite a jolt, as it were, in terms of how they're meeting at this stage. And it seems like they've never um, it, it, they've never been at such odds with each other. It, it's almost like – because we, we understand that there's people that believe in globalization and those that kind of seem to, to not want it as much. But it seems like we don't even understand – each other. It's almost like people are shocked by the views of their neighbor. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think the interesting thing is what I found out, and I was studying this with a lot of other co-authors in terms of Trump, is that Trump has actually let people bring their fears to the surface. And fears that they would only say maybe in their own homes, fears that they have about people who they see as strangers. He's actually permitted them to come to the surface with their ideas and their feelings, above all their feelings. Now, I don't think Trump created this. I think what he, what he did by the way he publicly addressed people in many ways, it permitted them to speak of what they actually felt as opposed to what they thought they weren't supposed to feel. Um, political correctness I think, men, means that many of us are actually fighting, hiding what we actually feel uh, because we're afraid of going wrong, as it were, in terms of the public norms. So I think it, this has been happening quite some t- for quite some time. It's been happening in Europe as well. And Trump provided the, the, the loudspeaker, as it were, around which people could accumulate. And, you know, it's interesting, they actually, they actually began to form a tribe as they did this. The feeling of, of collective energy and enjoyment is quite palpable when you look particularly at those early movements. People had never felt so good at being together and being able to say what they felt. It was like freedom. Yeah, that political correctness, I mean, and that became almost one of the banners that they would carry as well is, you know, we, we, we got to quit being politically correct. But they, they, I guess they also speak in a, a code. Um, and Donald, I guess, through this whole thing, Donald was able to to, to really maneuver in such a way um, these fears, these concerns, I guess in a way better than at least 16 or 17 GOP contenders that were fighting for the presidency. What What made his appeal so powerful? You know, Matt, I've come to the conclusion I don't know that Donald Trump actually is as strategic as many people think. I think he's a person who actually doesn't totally understand himself. But in that sense, he has presented an option for people. One of the really interesting things is how people think and speak of Donald Trump, and they say he's honest. Now, when you listen to the contradictory things he says, you think, what on earth do they mean by honest? But what they actually say is that the point at which he's speaking, he speaks from his heart, he speaks from what he's feeling. It's like a stream of consciousness. Everything that goes on in his head goes out into his tweet. And actually they see that as honest, as opposed to the careful, calculated speech that they might have seen Hillary Clinton um, putting, pulling together with great seriousness. They actually say he's honest in his discrepancies, in his conflicts as well. So in that sense, that's something they like. Perhaps it's got something to do with how they recognize that many, many politicians politicians really do hone and tune what they say so they'll get exactly right to get the votes for themselves. Uh, but I just get that. I don't know that Donald Trump actually is the best understander mm. of himself. And I think that he's been one of the most, if you look at the behavior and the things that he says, you can see he himself doesn't understand why he's creating so much chaos now within the White House and indeed within the world. Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting point, isn't it? Uh, and we want to attribute it to something but it, because sometimes it's so irrational, everyone else tends to question, you know, is he sane? Is he healthy? Um, but but you bring up a, a really good point. I mean, th- there are people that are hurting and people that that wanted something different. They wanted more honesty. They wanted more, I guess, transparency. They wanted um, – they, they didn't want necessarily presidents to go be able to make millions and tens and hundreds of millions of dollars off of their work without getting something done for them. And, and I, I think, you know, this is why um, the decision was actually made to write about the followers, because in a way Trump is not really the problem, surprisingly, uh, as it may seem to say that. It's actually the followers. 
You know, it's really interesting. I had an eye-opener some years ago. I work on the East Coast, and I work in Cambridge and Boston, and it's very hard to find people who aren't democratic. So I was delighted to find when a follow when somebody came to fix my television, and he was an avid supporter of um, President Trump. And I sort of gently said, in the way liberals do, you know, well, maybe he's getting it wrong in Iraq. And I can remember he put the tools down on the floor. He was kneeling by the TV, and he looked up at me, and he said, I don't care. If President Bush is wrong, he is strong, and that's what I want in a leader. And it's really interesting. Uh, all, the, all the research shows that all over the world, people would actually prefer a president who was strong than one whom they saw as weak. And what they mean by weak is somebody like Obama, who consults with people, who thinks about things, who debates upon things, and then says what he wants. They actually love people to shoot from the hip, and they, they love the fact that he's portraying strength. They want him to be their man, as it were. And this is not unusual, frankly, in most other parts of the world. I think we're hitting now in the United States, and this desire for somebody that is strong and also simple in the way he explains things. I mean, he, Donald Trump is very simple language. It's got none of the sophistication of most of the other politicians. And believe it or not, people like that. Hmm. So they feel he's strong, he's simple, he's with them. And it really is true. They wouldn't mind spending an evening in the bar with Donald Trump, whereas they might hate spending it with some of the other 14, 15 d- different candidates. That's interesting. In fact, you bring up a really, uh, in your article um, for Scientific American that you edited, you bring up a lot of great content from your book about his rallies. Uh, Trump, yeah. I mean, his rallies really show you how he works and how he would create this image of strength. Maybe talk about that. I mean, one of the things you do, you have a really strong caveat. There's a lot to learn about um, about Germany and, and Hitler and how Hitler got the people to follow him. Mm-hmm. And you're not equating Trump to Hitler, but some of the methodologies of, of moving people and getting people bought in uh, Trump u- that Trump used uh, were similar to what Hitler used. Yeah, and again, I go back to that. I think Hitler was very strategic and knew what he was doing. I think less so Donald Trump. The rallies are fascinating. And there's great energy. There's a great camaraderie. There's a great feeling of being at a show. It's a bit like being at a circus. Now, the really interesting thing is people will used to queue for hours to get in. But they started to drift away when when the rallies went on too long. And when President, uh, then uh, candidate Trump, started to talk about the details, they really actually left the arena. They were not interested. They didn't want to know the exactitude. Most politicians like to tell people exactly what they think. But these people just wanted the strength and the simplicity, and they wanted to leave the rest to him. They were bored of the rest. Now, interestingly, um, I've been watching some of the rallies he's been returning to. Um, I think in the hope that he will get back his joie de vivre that has kept, that kept him going during those rallies. And as we all know, he's having a, a tough time. But if you watch, um, I'm wondering how long that energy will continue, because he himself actually is beginning to sound um, very tired. And it was partly his energy that was getting people going. They were swept up by it. So I think there's also a mutedness beginning to happen on the part both of the, uh, an exhaustion on the part of the president, and also a lesser clarity on the part of his followers, because they now realize, well, the simplicity that they had, that they saw in terms of the candidate, perhaps is not as simple as they thought. 
This does not mean, by the way, that they will stop supporting him because once you've almost, I mean, it is almost like falling in love with somebody. Once you've put your heart somewhere, it actually, there actually has to be quite a discrepancy before you will actually take your heart back. We can, we'll actually do all sorts of mind games in order to stay caring for somebody, in order, in order to stay respecting someone. But there's no doubt that it's not, um, it's unlike a cult, it's not a very strategic cult that President Trump has created. It's actually a, a follower crowd who loved his energy loved his simplicity, loved his strength, loved that he said all the things that, they, that many of them actually felt, loved that he agreed with them, that there were strangers in their land that shouldn't be there, almost loved the fact that uh, many of them, uh, as you see in the article, think that the Constitution says the United States is a Christian nation. It doesn't say anything of the sort, but they believe that he says it and that he is on, on their side. So how long this will, energy will continue will be really interesting. The, the problem is I don't think that any of the other candidates are actually rapport, have the same sort of rapport huh. that actually a candidate Trump has. And I think that's going to be a problem in the future for yeah. them. Yeah. How can politicians follow this? Right, yeah. And who can step in with the same energy and... Huh. And it, simplicity. Yeah. I mean, people like it to be simple. They don't want to know the details. And this is where politicians often get it wrong. I happen to know, actually, both, um, I happen to have met, because I work in Northern Ireland, both President Clinton and Hillary Clinton. And it, certainly some of the people who voted for Trump were people who couldn't take um, Clinton. And when you look at it, it, you begin to wonder why, because she is so intelligent, yeah. she is so strategic, all of these. But she, on the other hand, she doesn't actually have the same uh, sort of instinctive warmth that her husband had. Yeah. And that Donald Trump portrayed, and he loved the rallies. He was at his best at the rallies, and the people got caught in that. It's too, she's too heady a person almost to do that. And different people would vote for her than would vote for him. But I think it is going to be setting the marker, as it were, as to where politics goes in the future is going to be really interesting and it quite really difficult. Is. Let's do this. Let's take a break. Uh, we're speaking with Mari Fitzduff, author of the book Why Irrational Politics Appeals. And uh, we'll come back, continue the journey, the discussion, find out uh, what it looks like in the future. What And, and what really what's going on, on in, I guess, all through Europe as well. With Brexit um, and what's with the what's with the, the 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 maybe mistrust of globalization and what does that do to our future? Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we are talking about the irrational appeal of uh, politics, and apparently, um, we, we follow we follow people that are strong. They may not be even clued in; they may not be informed necessarily, but they speak strength and they speak with simplicity. And for a lot of us, that's that's all we need, you know. Uh, we need we don't need the the wonk we we always hear about how you know many people love uh, president obama who loved to supposedly study issues he was he and and hillary clinton very wonkish loved the issues probably didn't nobody knows more than hillary on so many issues and yet she wasn't of appeal well won the general election hello um yet so here we sit and our guest today is uh 
Mari Fitzduff. She is the author of Why Irrational Politics Appeals, Understanding the Allure of Trump. She's also the founding director of the International Master's Program in Conflict Resolution and Coexistence at the Heller School at Brandeis University. She was also previously the first CEO of the Northern Ireland Community Relations Council, which developed and funded most of the peacebuilding programs in Northern Ireland. Mari, thank you again for being with us. Good to be with you, Matt. You understand conflict, obviously, from Northern Ireland uh, to to your conflict resolution program. Talk to us about – so we really are kind of irrational then when it comes to – who we choose for president. It, it almost doesn't seem like we're, we're always choosing maybe the best candidate, but the one that, uh, the one that I, I guess we feel fits us the best. Yes. I mean, the, the reality is we choose the person that we think we need at this current moment in time. And we actually do it very quickly. The research is fascinating. I mean, even if you're just putting pictures in front of people, with, even before they start thinking, they recognize things like a body that they see as strong, clear, etc., etc. So the, the interesting thing is, if that is the truth, um, how do we actually um, study the context? so that it doesn't necessarily become the whole truth for some people. Remember that um, there was certainly, uh, the world is changing, and people are somewhat afraid, and they see new faces, new colors, and they see them with suspicion. Interestingly, the places that voted in Europe, to rem- or in the United Kingdom, to remain in Brexit, were actually places like London, which overwhelmingly voted to remain. And mm. the interesting thing is, they are the most mixed-race cities that you can get. So in a way, we are moving inevitably towards mixed-race economies and countries. There's no doubt about that. The mobilization is is obvious. We are moving towards a world that's inevitably going to be mixed. You know this in the United States when by 2050, I think the the sort of white majority will be gone. It's this in-between time because once you actually get there and once you live in it and once your partners or your children are are different color to you and different ethnicities, then you actually begin to relax into it and you realize that your fear is, is and misfounded. But in this in-between time, when we see others as different, is a real problem. Now, I have to say that all the studies that we have done show us that noticing that people are different is inevitable. Anybody who says they don't notice that somebody is black or white or a woman or brown or whatever is lying. Hmm. We do notice because it's actually in our DNA, it's in our, our temperaments. That's what kept us safe. Who's with us? Who's against us? Who do we have to be afraid of? It's actually what we do with that noticing uh, that can be the difficulty. And when it's so strange to you and you hear perhaps rants about certain groups, etc., then inevitably that fear is deepened. But it does ease as we have more and more contact between people and as we become more and more mixed. So in that sense, we're moving towards a future that inevitably will belong to all of us. It's just an in-between time when we're sort of settling in, as it were, to living with people who are very different. And don't forget, um, in the United States, there was a disproportionate number of people in terms of history. I think it's 40 million people who hadn't been born in the United States out of 300 million. Wow. In Europe, it was the extra figures that were coming in in terms of immigration that were worrying people. Now, in my own home country, Ireland, they've had about a steady 10% living there who are not from Ireland. And that actually seems feasible and possible. They seem to have managed it pretty well. And they've had some very good leadership, which makes a huge difference. But where you see it as disproportionate and you see you and who you are and your identity being swamped, that's when the issue arises in terms of can I be comfortable with people who are different? And if I can't, are there people, people are 
articulating a philosophy that I will go along with in terms of them being the enemy. It's not that people, um, it's not that people are instinctively racist, as it were, but they associate difference with a threat to them and their mm. jobs and their people. Yeah, and all the Syrian refugees and, and the big push about that. And that is something interesting. Donald Trump pushed very hard against that. Is Does some of this have to do with the fact that so many, in, in the United States at least, identity politics was becoming such a a mainstream um, you know, a technique yeah. that was being used by, I guess, especially Democrats. Uh, maybe it was everyone was using it. But um, it, it seems like Trump's kind of a backlash to this identity politics thing. Well, I would say, um, you know, we do a lot of stuff about what life is worthwhile, etc. You know, after food and sex and shelter, belonging somewhere is the next most important need. Who am I? Who do I belong to? Who is my tribe? And I say, you know, Trump voters found themselves a tribe, disparate as they were. I think the, the joy of belonging to a tribe, uh, I mean, we actually know hormonally there's um, a hormone called oxytocin mm-hmm. that actually is released when we're with people that we actually enjoy being with. It makes us feel so good about ourselves. And also it makes us feel bad about others who are outsiders. So I do think none, somebody who tells me that they don't want to belong to any group, I really, really challenge that because it's such a basic need. And I think what's happening is in the uncertainty of the world, we're all trying to find basic groups. Or, sorry, we're not trying to find them. They're finding us, groups to which we feel we belong. So, for instance, identity politics is interesting in terms of race. Now, as we know, race in terms of color spans a whole variety. But, you know, we take an essentialist in terms of race like black. The big question certainly for, for, for many people is, at, am I actually black? What if I have, mm. for instance, I have a colleague who is black but has Irish blood, has um, Native American blood. You know, the whole question of who I am and where do I fit is often important, and it's often more important than life itself. Luckily enough, the United States is not dealing with too many people who are full-blown um, jihadists, as it were. Right. But joining jihad is very often about a belonging that people are seeking for and mistakenly seeking one that actually involves violence towards others. So uh, w- in, the, in an uncertain world where things are happening so quickly and so many avenues of communication, it's probably inevitable that we want to find somewhere where we feel at home, whether it's our family, our neighbours, or whether it's the voters of a particular people or of a particular colour. I think that's what's happening. We need that for the moment. Um, and working through the fact that we're actually moving towards um, a future that is inevitably going to be much more nuanced in terms of identity is something that I think we have to live through. Is And I guess belonging, because it seems like a lot of people... Uh you know, maybe voted for Trump, but are discouraged by some of his positions or so I guess you only need to belong enough. It doesn't have to be a perfect fit, but you have to feel like you belong enough. Well, you know, one of the my own particular doctor many, many years ago was uh, interviewing paramilitaries who had joined and the IRA and the Ulster Volunteer Force, which is the Protestant force. Yeah. And one of the things they very shamefacedly admitted to me, uh, almost every one of them was that they never felt more alive than when belonged to those particular groups and they were out on a night of action. Hmm. So this question of actually feeling truly belonging, one of the sad things that I sense will happen is as people continue to go to these rallies, the that, that original sense of belonging that they felt is probably going to be diminished. It's probably going to dissipate over the, the months and the years as things inevitably get more complex, as they always do. I mean, Trump's simplicity served him well on the campaign trail, but we see how challenging it is that he's now in power. 
And actually, you know, in a sense, I get a sense of these people who see yet another dream going, a dream on top of the dream they once had for their children. So I feel that inevitably there's going to be tremendous disappointment on the part of his followers. Uh, it will take some time because we don't like to let go of the fact that, you know, we felt good, we felt great, we felt we knew who we were, we felt we could speak our minds. That's something people want to hang on to for mm. quite some time. But inevitably this is going to, to crumble, and I fear that disillusionment is already beginning to settle in in terms of things are certainly not going to change overnight or even next month or even while maybe dreadful to think about it while President Trump is in power. Well, and it's interesting, too. I guess he doesn't have to get a million uh, success stories. He just needs five, six things to simply go point to. Yeah, this is what I've done. There you go. Did that, Mm -hmm. did that and take credit for things. Um, But then, too, the opposition or the Democrats in the United States and the anti-Brexiters um, I, I guess you you still have to make a better argument. You still have to draw the votes to get things to change. Do you sense in the future um, that you you were talking earlier that boy you don't necessarily see a challenger that can take him on yet? Mm. I, I think I mean this in a sense did what's happened both in Brexit and in um, voting for President Trump is that there's a lesson there. I sometimes say. If only we had put the new industries into the Rust Belt. Right. But people had new ways of using their engineering skills, new ways of using their technological skills, their communication skills. This would not have happened if all of us had just kept an eye on who is being left out, who, contrary to those of us who see ourselves as the liberals who are running a fast-changing world, what about the people who see their children are not actually gaining from this, that the skills that they used to have are gone and they're not needed anymore? You know, the, the idea that, they're, that the, the height of President Trump's dream is to have the children of the Rust Belt going down the coal mines again. I mean, this is just so uh, worrying. But we do need to know that every person uh, has, uh, needs to have something to live for, needs to have a dream to go for, needs to have something above all for their children to yearn for. And because we didn't take notice of that enough and didn't provide enough opportunities and possibilities for it, we are where we are, both in terms of Europe and the United States. And I think that that is a big lesson for us. I think the other lesson is democracy is not as simple as we think. It's interesting that people were very confused. They thought there were two different uh, uh, structures for Obamacare and Affordable Care Act. When you study it, it is actually our immigrants who become citizens who actually know much more about about the American society. It's really the, the ignorance that people have in terms of how things work. I hear people on one hand saying, get government out of my life, and then not noticing that Medicare or Medicaid or Social Security is government. People really don't understand how society works. And therefore, decisions are much more easily taken. Now, there's there's quite a lot of work being done on what we call deliberative democracy to actually counter this, which is, and Europe has had a lot of it um, beginning over the last few years because they recognize the threat, where actually you take random people together. It's quite extraordinary here in Ireland, uh, which was very much a Catholic nation. So they had a random assembly of people who were literally pulled in from the telephone book at random and put them together to discuss difficult issues like abortion. And it is 
really interesting to see how people then have to really begin to think mm. through issues that they feel very strongly about. And a lot more of that, in Northern Ireland we've had to do this in terms of our schools because we had people killing each other just because they were different identities and saw each other as having power or using violence. And our children are now, uh, they, they're de- we are demand of our teachers and our schools that we look at a form of deliberate democracy where we look at the different groups in it and um, what the whole thing means in terms of immigration, in terms of identity, in terms of ethnicity. So I think being much more careful about our democracy is something that um, we actually really do need to take account of because we can see the decisions, certainly in uh, Europe, the feeling that we didn't pay enough attention and therefore people voted on the basis of feelings, many of whom are actually going to, the people, are going to be the people who will suffer mm. when the inevitable Brexit happens. No, I think that's right. And we, it, it, again, it's such, it, it, it's, our leaders are paid to make it complicated and boy, it doesn't have to be half as complicated if, if, if we can get in on the ground level and have these conversations. It seems a little easier to have them with just two of us, maybe five or 15 of us, and a mediator like uh, Mari Fitzduff than it is when you bring in a bunch of politicians. Well, we appreciate uh, Mari Fitzduff. Again, the book, Why Irrational Politics Appeals, uh, Understanding the Allure of Trump. You can find out more of uh, what Mari's doing at Brandeis University. Just Google her, Mari Fitzduff. We'll take a break, folks. Come back, wrap up hour number one. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! So let's pretend like we could take the liberal and the Democrat or the Republican GOP conservative out of it and just make us a bunch of Americans that want to feel like we belong. Would you say overall that President Bush did a great job of making the other half of the body politic feel like they belong. Did President Obama do a good job of that? Did President Clinton going back? I mean, are these people great at reaching over the aisle to the other side? And I wonder if we could if we could be better at reaching across the aisle to make the other side feel heard and understood instead of just oppressed and beat down in the political world, um, if we wouldn't be better off? And can we, does our body of politics allow that? And who's leading that? The constituencies, the, the voters? Are they the ones that wouldn't allow that? Or is it the politicians? Or is it really just that a lot of the issues are so divided and we have a lot of people with a lot of money fighting on both sides of the issue? It's amazing to me that when you're talking about Trump and the, all of the tension that we feel in this country, it comes back down to a very basic universal need of everybody needing to belong. Humans, no matter how different we want to pretend like we all are, we all just want to belong and feel safe. It's just basic human need. So use it. Uh, if, if you're in a position of power and you're in charge of a group, Make sure you're crossing the li- the aisle and understanding what the others need, because if you don't, it will swing. And just as surely as it has swung toward the GOP, it will swing back toward the Democrats. That's the crazy ride that we're on. It's a 
it's it's going to swing if we won't do what has to be done by reaching across the aisle. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back. Continue the journey with us. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hour number two of the program. If you missed the first hour, go check it out on iTunes, on TuneIn, on Stitcher, BYURadio.org. It's everywhere. Uh, MattTownsend.com. You can find it everywhere. Hey, we got a great uh, show for you today as we are celebrating um, a day not to be forgotten. This is National Hole in My Bucket Day. We suggest you take this song and sing it through the office all day long. And just see, just see if it doesn't elicit some emotional response. From your you're, people. You're pretty much guaranteed a an emotional response. Really? No, oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, you're going to get some form of emotion. A slap in the face. Uh, a pink slip. Ooh. Yeah. Someone will key your car. Slash your tires. And why don't you just, instead of singing, go fix your bucket, you lazy... <laughs> Hole in the bucket person. And quit complaining about it. Right. And quit singing. Okay. This is good. Oh, great. It's louder. By the way, the song has origins in the 1700 Germany. Uh, It's about a back and forth conversation between Henry and Liza. Henry needs to fix his leaky bucket. And in each stanza, Henry asks Lisa for advice. In the end, he needs a bucket to carry water to repair his bucket. Can you imagine if we did this with every mundane detail of our day? Some say that we do. It's called texting. Matt, what time What time did you come in? Did you come in? Did you come in? What time did you come in? Oh, Matt, what time? <laughs> if I had a gun sound, I'd use it right there. But think about it with an email, right? You send an email, you send a text, you're asking a question. Do you then wait? That person then responds with the answer, but then maybe it's not exactly the answer you wanted. So then you have to send another message clarifying, and then they have to realize what just happened. And Okay, they're clarifying, and then respond. But when you could have just walked over to their office, sat down, and said, hey, what about this? It's finished in like a minute, and you walk out the door. Well, and then you have to reply... Thank you, but you reply all, and then that person replies all, you're welcome, smiley face. And then you reply with, oh, thank you for the you're welcome. So we're doing this every day. Yeah. It's just not about a hole in the bucket. It's mainly well, something. And the neat thing with Instagram and Facebook is you can also – you don't have to sing it. You could, you could do – you could text it. You oh. could show pictures of it. You could do boomerangs where you're doing little dances. Right. I mean there's really no end to the – just the exhaustion that you could <laughs> – compel others to experience and we haven't fixed the problem we're just avoiding face-to-face communication even though in the song apparently they're face-to-face they're just being really wordy about it we would never do that here no no we wouldn't do that here but uh yeah (laughs) anyway moving on today we're going to be talking about uh, the secret to remembering your vacation 
it, it involves this same theory. Don't drink alcohol? That's one way. Yeah. A lot of people go on vacation just to drink. That's crazy. Like, why would you want to go just to forget it? Mm. Like, you're spending a lot of money to get to the Bahamas. Don't you want to remember it? Well, I mean, between, like, port and the Bahamas, what's there to remember? Well, but it also it's seems like... the like, ocean. Well, the, yeah, but you it's could like, wake eh. up in a skiff, you know, my, many miles offshore. There'd be a story there, wouldn't there? And you wouldn't remember it at all. Yeah, but you could also be floating for days. Eh. You've heard the stories. Uh, Andrea Bartz will be joining us talking about um, some of the latest research about remembering your vacation. One of the best ways is maybe put your camera down, dear Liza. Dear Liza, <laughs> dear Liza. Put your camera down. I went to a uh, basketball game. I took two or three pictures, sent them to mom, just sat there with my kid. The person in front of us, the woman in front of us took probably 90 pictures. Oh, see, Didn't that, watch the game. Was my, is that my wife? No, but she was more focused on looking down the aisle at her family and getting pictures yeah. and Instagram no, and Twitter and we've Facebook. Got everything and, like that. It's, it's, yeah. I start to worry because I don't ever take a picture. Everyone grabs their phone to start taking pictures of these things, and I'm like, eh, my wife will get it. Right. So I don't take any, but I – I kind of enjoy the moment. I mean, I'm in the moment. Yeah. Should I be taking more pictures? I feel weird. Like, what's I, wrong I, th- with me? I think your your mind is more focused on what the picture should look like, not necessarily what's happening. And you're not you're not actually there. You're busy playing with your phone. You're not actually trying to you know be part of this moment that yeah. you're trying to remember with a photograph that's so important. But by doing that, you're not actually there. I think you're right. Yeah. But what about for the people that whose memories are fleeting them? Well, that's a whole different story. Or at least cut the photograph down to maybe one or two. But people take like 20? Well, yeah. <laughs> I, we down. have, I think, 12,000, 15,000 photos on our drive. And I don't – we never go through and look at them. No. Because you're too busy taking more photos. Yeah. But you could look back and go, remember that? You're like, well, not really, but I remember taking the picture. And then you also have this incredible <laughs> worry that what if I lose all of these pictures? Oh, yeah. Because I don't even remember the event because I was taking all these pictures. And I'll have to use my brain. Yeah. See? You know. You know how this works. So we'll get to all that fun straight ahead. Uh, again, continuing to c- celebrate also National Hole in the Bucket Day. But we won't play the song again because it's so annoying. Um, <laughs> sorry. 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 Hey, fix your bucket. Okay, we'll get to that. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? A mock intercontinental ballistic missile launch by the U.S. over the Pacific Ocean was successfully shot down Tuesday by an upgraded long-range interceptor missile, the Missile Defense Agency said in a statement. So they shot down a bullet with a bullet. Sounds Appropriate. Yeah. Uh, very difficult to do. Yeah, that's a cool test. So the ground-based interceptor launched from California's Vandenberg Air Force Base destroyed the target in a direct collision. The defense agency said since 2002, more than $40 billion has been invested in the uh, missile defense agency's uh, program to be able to inter- intercept these missiles. Uh, this, of course, came right after North Korea over the weekend tested a, a new missile system. It went 243 miles and fell into the ocean. You know, basically, it entered the height necessary to actually get to the United States if they could actually get their rockets to fly that far. Huh. So, point, it's a point of concern, and now they're just getting to the point now where we have some sort of uh, capability to shoot something like that down. Yeah. 
The problem with it, though, is um, what is CNN reports that two out of the last five attempts have been successful. That's only 40% success rate since 2010 with this program. Really? So, you know. They're, they're, the, the defense agencies are kind of doing a victory lap on this, but it's only about 40% effective if you look at the last few tests. Yeah. So we'll see where it goes. Well, but because really this is for the North Koreans. That's kind of what's happening. I mean, happening we're sending a yeah. message because the North Koreans, their testing is perfect. Always. Yeah. Always. In fact, North Korea has ordered the development of a more powerful weapon as a mean of sending a, quote, bigger gift package to the Yankees, the state news agency in North Korea quoted leader Kim Jong-un is saying. Huh, wow. A bigger gift package to the Yankees. Like the baseball team, the Yankees? Now, I was confused, but I hmm. think he means... I think he means the Yanks, the Americans. Like us. That's offensive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Pennsylvania's Three Mile Island uh, power plant will close in 2019, 40 years after it was the site of the worst nuclear accident in the U.S. history as low natural gas prices make cost of atomic energy uncompetitive. As owners said on Tuesday, the plant's name has been synonymous with public fears over the risk associated with the nuclear power since the plant suffered a partial meltdown in 1979, sparking sweeping new rules for handling emergencies at nuclear sites. Um, if you remember... The movie X-Men Origins. Oh, boy. And I know you do, Matt. Wolverine, they featured Three Mile Island and revealed that the meltdown was actually a huge cover-up of a government facility that was experimenting on huh. mutants as part of the Weapons X program. That's... What, what year was that? The movie? Yeah. It was, this all... It took place in 1979. Yeah, but see, isn't it weird now that Trump's president? Just saying. Do we really know if it was a meltdown? Or was it just a mutant... Because I said no one was really affected. That's where the Ninja Turtles came from, right? No, Deadpool. But that's a whole different story. Okay. Um, also, Samsung. Yeah. They uh, may resell refurbished editions of the infamous Galaxy Note 7. Ah! They're rebranding it, calling it the, ga- the Galaxy Note FE. Fire Extreme. Fandom Edition. Really? Yeah. So, as you recall, Samsung ceased production of the phone and all that good stuff, and now they're recycling, trying to figure out a way. Today, this was last week, a report from a Korean news outlet, ET News, said these handsets may be called the Galaxy FE. Uh, though the name may seem overly pandering to its fans, it may not be all that misguided. January Verizon told Fortune magazine that thousands of people were still using their Note 7s. Yeah, why not? Despite Samsung reportedly uh, saying that 93% of all the devices had been returned. It, it, yeah, you got to refurbish those, right? Send those out, put in a non-explosive battery, non yeah, and then I'll give them to kids in the inner city. Uh, if Samsung would do that, unbelievable. And a question for you. I just yeah. saw this on, on Twitter. On the Today Show, they have their third, fourth hour, whatever. It's kind of a chuckle fest, I guess you could call it. Um, but you have uh, Al Roker, the weather guy. He's out there talking about something that – uh, one of the uh, Today Show hosts, Savannah Guthrie, talked about that she brushes her teeth in the shower. I do too. And Is that bad? I don't know. Um, I shave she, in the shower. She, she was saying she needed to be more efficient in the shower. She's not just a weatherman. Yeah. She has things to accomplish you during the day. got stuff to do. She doesn't have all day like Al Roker. Yeah, that's pretty funny. But uh, and he was accusing her of being lazy. She actually has a, a toothbrush out by the mirror, yeah, yeah, and then one in the shower. So she has two toothbrushes, See, she's two rich. toothpaste. She's got two toothbrushes because right? she can't just. <laughs> she says she's late. Yeah. She, she can't just reach in and no, grab no, the no. other one. So my question is, is that something to do in the shower? Brush your teeth. Yeah, depends on if the water is the drop-off water or you're getting it from the shower head. I try mm. to get the water from above, not from below. 
<laughs> Aim high. Grandma taught me that rule. Aim high. Always get the water from above. This seems like something maybe you don't need to do in the shower. Well, but it, it is timely, right? Like, so I save time by shaving, brushing my teeth, and showering. Mm. And also, sometimes I'll make an omelet. <laughs> oh, great. In the shower. Just didn't seem like she, – she said that she felt like a lot of people actually do that. Oh, yeah. I, I'm with her. brush your teeth in the you shower. You do. Yeah. We're, all, we're not all weathermen. I just – I don't know. I Does think it really we, save any time though? Yes. Because it's two minutes. You're supposed to brush yeah, for two minutes. Yeah, but you have two minutes in the shower just absorbing the yum-yumness Aren't you just wasting more water? water? Sure. Okay. So the two minutes that you would spend in the shower brushing your teeth could just as easily be spent outside of the shower. Yeah, but looking no at time yourself wasted. in the mirror. But you could be enjoying the warm water as it soothes your body and your aching muscles. Or you can be looking, freezing, drip-drying. We'll get dressed first. Listen, some of us like to watch ourselves brush our teeth, okay? <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. You know what I think is weirder than that are the people that brush their teeth at the office – yeah. In the bathrooms here. Now, I get it. I get oral hygiene. Mm-hmm. I mean, I get it. That's great. This is a public restroom. Yes. Where I'm sure many things you've never thought of being cleaned in those sinks have been cleaned in those sinks. Right. Mops, no. feet. Those bathrooms are cleaned every morning. Our bathrooms are incredible here. Yeah. But, but, but like, nonetheless, yeah. you don't put your hygiene tool no. down on the counter. In a public restroom. And what about the people that essentially take a shower at that same sink? Yeah, the guy, remember the one that always takes his shirt off? Yeah. Yeah, that's weird. I wish you'd stop that. Just strange. Hey, um, okay, well, we solved the problem of the day. Okay, so I guess you'd, brush everyone, everyone it, brushes their teeth in the shower now. Let everyone brush where they want to brush. I want more time with warm water on my body so I get everything done there. Then it's just, then you just got to... You know, make it look pretty after. Get out, make it look pretty. You're out of there. I am brush location agnostic, whatever you want to do. Really? That's great. Great. Hey, uh, what would happen if somebody gave you stale fries at a Wendy's? Say, could I get some new fries? Yeah, hey, my these are stale. Can I get some new fries? Take them back. Maybe ask for a Frosty to compensate me. Yeah. Mm. I'll eat the stale fries if you'll give me a Frosty to dip them in. Yeah. No. A Minnesota woman is in jail after she allegedly got so upset over stale fries that she ended up spraying mace through the drive through window at a Wendy's employee. Huh. Jeepers. Seems like a measured reaction. Yeah. 25-year-old Iram Channel Amir Dixon is now facing um, a felony charge for the use of tear gas to immobilize uh, while protecting – not while protecting self-property. Apparently, you can immobilize people if you're protecting your property. Well, weren't the fries? Well, I guess she wasn't protecting them. No. She, she was rejecting them. She was them. rejecting them. According to the criminal complaint, multiple employees told the same story. They stated that Dixon allegedly came to the drive through window, ordered food, and requested French or fresh French fries. Um, she wanted them fresh, you know. You always do. Um, she then began to argue and reportedly tried to reach through the drive through window. One of the employees threw a soda at her before Dixon allegedly went back into her car. Oh, now you've... So you don't throw the soda at the customer. Now, so here we so go. So was the soda thrown before the mace? Apparently, Sounds like it. She went back into her car, grabbed mace, and started spraying in through the window. One employee standing at the window was hit directly in the face and uh, the report states the other two people reportedly got spray on them as well. Hmm. 
So she left with a felony charge and sticky body because of a right. beverage. And they left with burning eyes. But she reached through the window and tried to grab an employee. Is that what she yeah. did? Okay. Yeah. And then they responded by throwing the drink, and then she grabbed the maid. Okay. 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 This this is weird. I don't know if this woman heard our show, uh, an episode that we did previously. Why? What? This conversation was brought up on a different show, and now there's a story about it. I think I've got the clip from the show. Now just not going to stand the the under the seat test. The what? The test where you drop a fly oh, under right. your seat and you find it three years later and it's perfectly oh, preserved. And then you stab yourself on the French fry and you have to go get a tetanus shot? Yes. That's the worst injury you can have is the the three-year-old fry injury. I agree. Um, unless, you know, you're like a fast food employee and someone maces you in the face for serving them the old fries. Mm-mm. Hmm. It's so weird that it's we had so the weird. exact same conversation. But you, you've you've apparently had this happen before. You knew that this could happen. I I guess this, I, I've only heard of the fry under the seat. I don't even really remember saying that. Yeah, I don't either. And I was there. So strange. Yeah, you got to watch out for those stale fries, folks. Come on, can't we all just get along? We don't need to hurt each other. But by the way, uh, Wendy's will be serving spicy hot. Chicken sandwiches. Flendies. Flendies. They say Flendies, yeah. From Flendies. So not everything was lost. They did invent a new spicy hot chicken sandwich. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, how to remember your vacations better. There's some things you might want to put away if you want to remember things. Stick with us. Did you know that technology can actually tamper uh, or hamper with your ability to remember the important moments in life? Cameras and smartphones are usually on every traveler's checklist, but our guest today has some advice on why we should just uh, leave some of those things in our hotel room. Uh, I mean, it may not be ideal, right? But it did uh, it did impact Andrea Bart's life. Uh, she's a Brooklyn-based journalist and copywriter who covers health, travel, psychology, and lifestyle, plus many other things. She also um, is a budding thriller novelist and uh, is is doing what she can to to grow that as well. Andrea, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So here you are, a journalist, and one of the great tools of a journalist would be your cell phone and your camera, and you are on a. If I recall, you were in Uganda on a, going out on a safari almost, and you forgot your phone. Yeah, that's that's correct. So I, I rely on my my iPhone pretty heavily when I'm traveling for taking photos, for taking notes, stuff like that. And um, I was in Murchison Falls, an area of Uganda that's right on the Nile, and uh, my friends and I were leaving on a boat safari, a water safari, where we were going to be on kind of like a mini pontoon boat cruising up, cruising up the Nile River, wow. getting really close to animals. Uh, right? So, like, supposed to be one of the coolest experiences of my life, and we had <laughs> just departed from the dock when I realized, oh, my gosh, I left my phone charging at the charging station in the in the, the lodge's sort of main area. So, you know, I didn't want to make us turn around. I knew we had a schedule, and off we went. Um, and... It was, as I had predicted, one of the really coolest afternoons of my life. We got, you know, right up into the middle of a herd of elephants. We 
came within a few feet of this 12-foot crocodile that just looked at us and sort of hinged open its jaw. And um, we, we paused near Murchison Falls, which is a, a huge waterfall where the entire Nile squeezes to about 20 feet across. And we oh, hiked wow. to the top. And it was just incredible. And I was so kind of bummed the whole time that I didn't have my phone. But, you know, my friends around me were snapping plenty of photos. And I was just looking. And I didn't have sort of the screen in front of me to... Uh, to, to filter everything. And what I discovered was that even though I'd been to a lot of different amazing places on this trip, I saw different regions. We were in, you know, the near volcanoes, we were in the rainforest, we were on the Nile, we were out in the dusty savannah. I realized that when people asked me about the trip, the day that kind of came back with the most clarity to me that I remembered the best and really had the clearest, sharpest memories from was this day that I didn't have my phone. Huh. And I thought, that's interesting. And so uh, that's kind of why I began looking into it and what might be behind that. I mean, I I never take pictures. I don't know. Um, my wife does, so I think that's why I don't. If if something happened to her, I would never document any part of my life ever again. Um, well, but I guess that's the thing is that I I see I feel like I experience a lot of the stuff, but I'm I wonder yeah. if my kids and my wife do. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's kind of interesting because the way that you sort of rely on your wife to take the photos, you know that you're still going to get those photos, photos yeah. taken, is sort of the same offloading that we do with cameras. We figure, I don't really need to uh, engage with this too directly, to remember it too, too much because the camera's going to do it for me. I'm going to have these photos that I can always look back on. And sort of what will happen is you'll get to a point where you'll remember the photos of a trip, but you won't necessarily remember that moment. You'll hmm. sort of just remember the, the capturing you took of it. Um, and that's, you know, I think a little bit sad when you're trying to look back and, and really remember the experience of something. Yeah, I mean, because I guess then what we're really going for are photos. I mean, right? right? You're not even right. going for the experience anymore. You're just, you're kind of just going for the photos or the, the perfect we did it, the perfect um, selfie with an alligator. I mean, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, and it's, I don't think it's necessarily, um, you know, I don't think that people are being selfish. I don't think the idea no. is always, oh, I need to get the, I need to get the perfect Instagram so that I get accolades for this. I don't think that's the intention. You really just, it's amazing. And so your instinct is, oh my gosh, I have a camera. I better take photos. Um, but we're sort of depriving ourselves of something when we do that, I think. And then you found that the research backs this up. The the studies are showing that this is a true phenomenon. Yeah, absolutely. So the the there's been research on this, you know, especially in the last 10 years or so, finding that, um, you know, they set up really simple experiments and have people observe something and take photos or simply observe something. And those who simply observe something remember a lot more. They have more um, details to their memory. They have more, it has more sort of emotional resonance. Um, and a study that had just come out this month, it's actually in, in press, that really stood out to me was all about family vacations. And it looked at the impact of smartphones on family vacations. Um, and everything from, you know, the planning of the trip to how you're using it when you're there. So not just the camera function, but... Uh, one of the findings that really stuck out to me was that uh, the more people engaged with their smartphones on their trip, the fewer, quote, autobiographic memories they have. So they might still remember things, but those detailed memories where you could really picture yourself being there, it's sort of part of who you are, that experience is part of your autobiography, those weren't really laid down in the same way if you were kind of stuck with your phone and stuck using your phone and, and checking it and taking photos and, and sort of disengaging from the environment. 
That's so interesting to me because we um, – boy, because the, the whole phone camera thing is really relatively new, right? And we've had mm-hmm. phones only a few years with cameras. But even the idea like you were talking about leaving your phone at a public charging station, just mm-hmm. that thought would terrify me. Like <laughs> and I could see just that thought ruining the rest of the tour for me because I'd constantly be worried about my phone. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a little unusual because we were like the only humans for a few miles around. And I think we were the only ones at the, that tiny resort at the okay. time. We were, yeah. um, you know, a little eight, eight cabin sort of resort. Uh, so I didn't I wasn't worried about someone stealing it so much. But um, I was a little just <laughs> bummed that I wouldn't be able to use it the way that I was used to, the way that my default, you know, mode is. Yeah. It's, um, we were joking that one of the best ways to remember your vacation would not just don't do any drinking. Um, th- then you'll be <laughs> able to remember. Yeah, but idea. you bring up a really good point about uh, learning to be present. It seems like a lot of us strung- struggle with this mindfulness idea of actually being in the moment we're in. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think I think that's a really important point that uh, I was doing some research on what um, sort of, you know, fights back against that and what can sort of um, get rid of that that automatic instinct to to offload onto your camera and not really remember it. And mindfulness is absolutely the key and you can kind of, you know, accomplish that in different ways. But um, certainly when you're on a vacation and it's something you've been looking forward to for for months and you're so excited to be there, like, it seems like that sh- would be worth worth trying to do, worth trying to actually make yourself enjoy it and experience it in the moment instead of just having a bunch of great Instagrams after. Yeah, so true. What uh, What do your friends say? Um, I mean, in, in a way, have you talked to your friends that were on the trip with you about this experience? Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, I... I was mad that I didn't have my own camera, but also spoiled because it wasn't hard for me to get photos from them afterward, and yeah. they were all snapping away. Um, but one friend that I was on the trip with told a story that really stuck with me. She had been um, she'd been somewhere in like the rainforest in Southeast Asia. This was years ago, and she was kayaking with some friends, um, and suddenly this group of dolphins just appeared out of nowhere and just like played with them for maybe. 30 seconds, just, you know, jumping around their kayaks and splashing and this really sort of life-changing experience. And then they got, then they were gone. And one of the friends she was with spent the entire 30 seconds digging in his dry bag, trying to get out his camera so he hmm. could capture it. He missed the entire thing. So I think once you have an experience like that, it, it, it can kind of cue you to, um, to try to, you know, engage more with experiences and, and remind yourself, okay, I've got the shot. I'm not going to get, it doesn't look that different now than it did three seconds ago. I'm going to put down my camera and I'm going to actually look at it myself. Huh, that's great. No, it really is. Uh, let's do this. Let's take a break, Andrea. We'll come back and continue the discussion of an art, another article that you wrote about uh, why it's sometimes it's healthy to run away from your problems. And uh, you, you gotta, sometimes you got to get away to, to get in. We'll take a break. Come back more with Andrea Bartz, a wonderful writer and uh, and really very insightful about life. Stick with us. We'll take a break.
Welcome back, friends. We're speaking with Andrea Bart. Uh, she is a writer based in Brooklyn and a copywriter who covers health, travel, psychology, lifestyle, plus many other topics. Her work has appeared in USA Today, The Wall Street Journal, and a whole constellation of other outlets. She's also a budding thriller novelist and former editor of several magazines. Today we're talking about an article she wrote. Uh, One was about the secret to remembering your vacation better, and another one is why it's healthy to run away from your problems from time to time. Andrea, welcome back. Thank you. So you're saying um, we, we need to, sometimes we need to learn to stay in the moment, and even if you don't have a camera, just take it all in, soak it in, you'll retain it, it'll create a powerful memory. But other times you're suggesting we need to just run. Yeah. So this was sort of a lesson I learned myself from a, from a pretty stressful situation at the beginning of the year. Um, so I was supposed to move on January 1st into a new apartment and early that morning, um, you know, just after all the revelers had gone to bed, a pipe burst in my new apartment and flooded the entire building. Uh, so I found this out when I was, you know, waking up or waking up on January 1st and had all my apartment packed and was ready to move. Um, and I had a trip scheduled for the following weekend to Antigua in the Caribbean. And it was supposed to be sort of this glorious, like, I got to my new apartment, I dropped all the boxes, and then I relaxed for a few days in this new place before I really started unpacking in earnest. And now suddenly, I didn't know where I was going to live. Um, and so some, some kind of wise friends gave me stage counsel to, you know, cancel the trip, reschedule the trip. This isn't a good idea. You have too much to deal with here. Um, I didn't even know all of the things that I needed to deal with, like cancel, you know, postponing a trip or postponing a uh, move the day of is turns out pretty hard and takes a lot of work. Um, and I ultimately decided not to and to just walk away from all of the problems and walk away <laughs> from all of the to do's and go on this trip. And that was sort of um, ended up being exactly what I needed to do. Oh, no, so many parents out there are like, oh, come on, Andrea, <laughs> step up and I mean, face your life. I do have the benefit of, you know, no kids myself, so my responsibilities are mostly mostly to myself, uh, being a freelancer and being a, being not a parent. But I do think there is something to be said for when a situation is stressful and you recognize that you can't look at it clearly, um, just getting away can actually help you become more mindful about it and see it for what it is. Um, my favorite meditation teacher is Tara Brock. Uh, said in a recent podcast of hers that I was listening to, she said, um, how did she put it? She said, once you, you know, once you look at a, she said it better than this, but once you look at a situation uh, without trying to change it or without fighting it, suddenly you, you, you see it for more than the problems. You hmm. see it for what it really is. And I was sort of stuck in that mindset of what do I do? <laughs> and getting away and breathing and being somewhere beautiful helped me to sort of figure out, okay, here are the things I can help with and here's what I need to do and here are the things that I can't change. I can't change the fact that, you know, there's two inches of water in my new apartment right yeah. now. Yeah. Well, and you, you, your writing makes a really good point. In a building with 87 units, mine was the one with a pipe under the kitchen sink that decided to explode shortly after the clock struck 12. Um, it's, it's interesting. I mean, sometimes it's just bad luck. Right. And, mm-hmm. but I, what amazes me for some people, like I, I, I know people that in the middle of the chaos of it all, the phone calls that had to be made, all of the problems, all of the issues, everything 
going crazy, they'll still at, they'll still answer their phone. Like they'll mm-hmm. still take mm-hmm. on three other challenges that they don't even know are happening. So you, you might be able to just go away by focusing all of your issues down to one right now. Like let's just let's just focus on this one problem. Uh, yeah. you, you, you're, you had multiple problems because you you also had to leave. And it was probably you were probably going to write about Antigua. And so, you know, this was still business. Yeah, yeah, it was it was I had, you know, a lot of factors going on and, and canceling canceling the trip would have been impractical for many, many reasons. But um, I think that's a really good point, even if you can't literally jet off to, to the Caribbean, like I was you know, fortunate enough to be able to do um, just taking a step back and like maybe it's walking to the park. Maybe it's, you know, going and seeing a movie by yourself. Maybe it's having a really treating yourself to a really nice meal and just getting that tiny bit of distance that allows you to like see a situation for what it really is mm. um, just makes it so much easier to deal with because yeah, you're right. It's really easy to fall into that. Why me? How am I supposed to, you know, why do I have to deal with this? There's too much to do. Somehow you're taking on more stuff that you shouldn't even be worrying about because it's not your problem. Um, it's really easy to sort of like lose perspectives. And I think taking a step back literally or figuratively uh, can actually help with that, again, that mindfulness of being able to sort of deal with the situation in a way that makes sense. Can't you see some people, too, feeling this um, weird social pressure to, I better be, I better live Facebook chat this. I better live cast this because I'm all my neighbors are going to, all my friends are going to want to see what I'm going through. So you almost feel this need to, like, document everything Oh, my heavens. Your house is flooding. Your neighbors are flooding. You've got to move. And I know people that would like, I better start taking pictures of this. We need to get yeah. this up on Instagram immediately. Yeah, there's an instinct to immediately share, immediately be documenting it. Um, I think for a lot of people, there's an instinct to immediately demonstrate how competent you are um, and to sort of, you know, simultaneously get the sympathy of, God, it really sucks that, you know, again, you're of the 87 units that's happened to yours, but also like, look, I'm a, I'm the kind of person who deals with everything and everyone needs to see that. Um, and you don't, in reality, like you don't have to be okay all the time. Like no. you don't have to, you know, you don't have to always be on top of things and dealing with it. Like it's no big deal. You can, you can be upset. <laughs> yeah. I was not happy. <laughs> yeah. And, and again, and you know, find a way to leave. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. go away, go away. Well, I mean, these are great lessons. Is this how you get your your ideas, Andrea? It sounds like you just live life and then you write about it. That's, I mean, that's one way to put it. Uh, I, I love writing first-person pieces. I love um, kind of taking the time to, to notice what's, what's interesting about um, something I'm struggling with or something a friend is struggling with, um, and then turning that into um, something that hopefully is helpful for other people. Um, and so I joke that I, I'm never not working because my poor friends, you know, will be having a conversation, you know, late on a Friday night over wine, and suddenly I'll go, wait, let me grab my notebook, because this is a story. This is an article. So, um yeah, I'm just I'm I'm intensely curious, like I think any good journalist, and so um, a lot of I, I really like kind of finding story ideas and finding um, bigger, more universal themes in in just everyday living in the mundane. Is I mean, I guess what's powerful though is writing about it um, has got to be helping you to tie down your learnings. 
Like mm-hmm. you, you live life and you actually evaluate it and learn. Um, do, do you sense that your writing has helped you create more change in life? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. Um, but yeah, I think for me, I, um, I'm sort of very publicly dealing with and, and struggling with and learning all of the, you know, life lessons that I think everyone does in their 20s and 30s. Um, and for me, being able to articulate what did I really learn from this, um, yeah, helps, helps solidify that lesson and helps me uh, having to put it into words and really nail down what, what is unique and what is an, a real insight that I would like to share with other people um, helps me solidify it for myself, absolutely. Mm. It's a, I think it's just a great exercise for all of us. Well, we appreciate you, Andrea. Thank you for your time and your great, uh, your great insight. Again, people, you can find uh, her writings everywhere. Just look up Andrea Bartz. The Secret to Remembering Your Vacation Better is the one we've been talking about today. We will take a break, come back, and continue the journey. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. Welcome back, friends. You know, as this is the show where we like to give you as much advice as we can because life isn't easy. And, you know, if you don't have your mom to call, who's going to give you advice anyway? You love that song, don't you? Yeah. Because I never wait for the drop. Just be grateful it wasn't this one. There's a hole in the bucket. Mm. Yep. She's still going. We started the show about two hours ago with... Uh, That's actually a little boy singing the first voice you heard. Oh, really? It's like, just fix the hole. you think over. he'd mature by now because he's been at it for two hours. His voice has got to be killing. That's oh, cute. It's just the song that never ends. This is, this is what led to Barney's dinosaur song that never ends. Oh. I think this, this is kind of... Uh, Ooh, I don't like the message that is being portrayed here. That men are incapable of yeah. well, he keeps accomplishing going to anything. Liza to have Liza help her help him with the bucket. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Turn that off. Turn it. Oh, I thought. Sorry, I thought yeah. you said up. No, get it. Turn it up. Turn okay. It off. Okay, so instead, let's take it another direction. And uh, Terry has been putting together his own list of the seven no keys. I found a list. Uh, seven lies that you feel are okay <laughs> to tell in your marriage. No, so Huffington Post. Oh, you're gonna blame this, it on Huffington. This article okay. says lies I tell my husband, and in parentheses that actually make our marriage stronger. Okay, that's where I was like, mm, because you, you, you being someone who counsels people yeah. in marriage relationships, we do that a lot. I'm going to imagine you try to advise people not to lie to yeah, each other. Yeah, I would say lying's not your best policy. Is it good to tell lies if you think it makes your marriage stronger? Well, I think the reality is we've talked about this on the show. Uh, we may not call those lies, mm. but you have to prioritize your truths. Okay. Right. So if your wife says, mm. do I look fat in this? She probably isn't looking for just cold honesty. Mm. There's a deeper issue. She looks, she's looking 
for some validation. She's looking. So it doesn't mean you lie. You just have to understand what her real motive is. So don't immediately say yes. Wait a few seconds. We'll try to understand. Honey, what do you what do you what do you mean? What are you looking for here? Just go. Yes. Oh, wait. Well, yeah, not fat. I mean, you look you look thick. Okay. (laughs) you don't say that. You're you a gotta, sturdy woman. You got to find out what her what's her right. real objective. So okay. lies, I'd be worried about. But th- this is Huffington Post, so we'll just take it with a grain of Huffington salt. <laughs> They're funny. The, the The first one they list is um, no, you haven't gained any weight. Yeah. So the wife talking to the husband, and it says, my husband believes he is as slim as the day he met me. This, of course, is not the case. <laughs> but we all have our fo- our foibles. We've both gained weight over the years. It's perfectly normal and perfectly fine in my eyes. I love him the way he is, and I don't care about the few extra pounds. Well, unless they're in the doctor's office, and he's like, have I gained weight? And you're like, no, you look great. No, you look fine. And then you step on the scale, and they're like, wait a second. Yeah, because it seems like he's got heart disease. Hmm. I'm just saying. So right. what should you do in that case? Again, there's a deeper issue here. Okay, okay. Like, I love you no matter how you look, but yeah, you, you've gained a few pounds. But it doesn't make you less attractive to me. Hmm. I mean, do we want <laughs> do do you want your partner to lie? I mean, so when you're forty five pounds overweight, have yeah. I I haven't gained any weight. No, you're right. Hmm. We don't trust anything then. Yeah, keep going. No, the next one is I still think you're hot. No, that's true though. My husband is not the dashing young man I married anymore. Other people may find find him or other people may find him the hottest thing on the planet, but I'm sure I sure don't anymore. I'm at peace with this. If he knew, he wouldn't. So in other words, she doesn't find him as hot as it was, but, you know, she's fine with that. Well, and what she needs to work on is how to make him look more hot to her. And so does he. So I don't consider that a lie. I think that's, you know, faking it to hoping something will happen to make you stay attracted. But, again, you got to work at it. Yeah, she has a very uh, – she's looking at it kind of as, as a practical thing. Yeah. And then how does she feel? Okay, but like there's like the visual and then there's the emotional. Let's just do something else. Let's just flip the entire scenario. Is she as hot as she once was? And right. are the other people hotter? I mean because the reality of life is there will always be people that are more attractive than you that will come around and – you may not know. The funny thing is, is, if I'm a betting man, he is still attracted to her, mm. and she may not be attracted to him. Wow. That men are a lot, in a weird way, we're a lot easier to please. Right. Hmm. Men don't critique people's looks as much. Men don't actually critique their wife's looks probably as much as women critique their husband's looks. Who do you think would be more upset to discover that their spouse was lying, the husband or the wife? Hmm. I think the wife. Really? Yeah. I think the husband. Yeah. I mean, I. I, I, You're lying, Dolores. He's not sitting there thinking, I hope she finds me attractive. Wow. Sounds like Harry Potter. The next one was, I love the gift you gave me. (laughs) Again, that's probably a healthy thing to say. Hey, it's great. It's great. Now, if you want him to keep giving bad gifts, you might want to learn to say something different. Well, maybe he's just being really vague. Like, I love the gift 
of love that you've given me, but yeah. you just omit the love part. <laughs> she writes, my husband does not make sound purchase decisions. In fact, I can't remember a single gift that he that has not been disappointing. It's baffling to me that after being married so long, he still doesn't know my tastes at all. At the same time, it's the thought that counts. See, that's a great point. It is the thought that counts, except if it's probably he keeps giving the same. If I really honestly bet he keeps giving the same bad gifts, right? Because she still she's been receiving bad gifts and accepting them with a lie forever. Says, oh, that's great. My husband put thought into each gift, however wrong he may be, and the thought is what makes each gift meaningful. That's what I appreciate. So the Excellent. easiest the easiest way to not be disappointed in a gift is just ask for something specific. Yeah, tell him exactly the guy what can you get want. It. And then the then to tack, you know to top it off, the guy can give her like a foot massage or something yeah, he, a little more meaningful right, to him. Right. See, you get it. She says this. And the next one is I don't mind going out with friends. When you do. Yeah. yeah. Again, sometimes you just got to bite your lip and go out with friends. So that's probably a lie that's fine at times. At times? Your wife, your spouse knows if you don't like going out with friends because you're the <laughs> one that never invites a friend. Every that's time right. she says, oh, we're going out with the Joneses, you're like, oh, jeez, Joneses. She knows you don't want to go. Fine, let's go. Uh, the le- next one, I love your cooking. <laughs> I love your cooking. See, my wife and I, this is why I don't cook. Yeah. I do other things to pull my weight, but I don't cook because I want to eat the food and enjoy it cuz I don't even enjoy yeah. it when I cook. But what, you know, you could learn to cook. I could, but yeah, it's hard to yeah. change. So the remember the, my the downside to lying to your partner is that they don't get a, a corrective feedback loop, so then they don't ever have to f- correct. So if you're always lying that their food is good, then guess what? You will eat cruddy food the rest of your life. You've perpetuated. the. So one of the rules that I use a lot with couples is uh, systems always reflect their creator. So if you have a system where someone isn't changing, notice a lot of those are things where you could tell people wouldn't be changing. It's because you've created a system where change isn't required. Mm. But by your 30th wedding anniversary, they should be getting it right. There's the one question there we skipped was no those aren't new those are there's those are old clothes they're not new no those are, yeah you can't and so lie she's about saying that. it's like he's a secret shopper and yeah. she knows it but she doesn't yeah. call him out so that that's, that's like a, a lie that's, that's a, a bad lie problem. Yeah. yeah and all of these are going to be carried on if you don't handle it the truth will set you free my wife says that you can uh, lie if presents are involved oh okay that's a good point we'll take a break folks stick with us this is the Matt Townsend show helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Happy uh, Wednesday to you. Today we are talking about body language in the online world. With President Trump on his last trip, you heard a lot of people talking about his body language. And the body language of people around him. And the funny thing about it is it is up for interpretation unless, I guess, you've been studying body language. Then there is a lot uh, a lot of information that we can get into. Joining us in a few minutes will be um, Dr. Leslie Shore, communication expert, professor, author, 
and he's going to talk about uh, body language in the in the world of the in the online world. You're losing even if you have a great emoticon. Some of those emoticons, by the way, I don't even know what they mean. We'll go see the movie that's coming out. Oh, there's a whole movie on emoticon. Yeah, is it all emoticon? Yeah. Why? Because it's it's called the Emoji Movie. <laughs> but like, have, do you have emojis? You don't know what they are. Oh yeah. Like, there's the blush. I don't know if blush is the, is the girl embarrassed. Is she just wearing rouge? Maybe she's holding her breath. Yeah. Yeah. We got to figure it out. So coming up, we'll be talking about decoding body language in the online world. It's a complicated issue, and it may be impacting your communication as well, right? You should ask about JK, because that supposedly just makes everything yeah. all better. You can, like, insult somebody and then yeah. just say, JK. Or even just J. Is J, I mean, now you just got a floating J. You know, it's almost like you got to add JK, not just a J, because, like, what's that J got to do with that sentence? Hmm. Smiley face? I mean, is that good enough? It's a complicated world we live in. I do not understand how we're going to make it through. So we'll talk body language. We will also, of course, be getting uh, some headlines and some empty news, we call it. Matt Townsend News. News that you didn't even know you needed, but it's still valuable. The MT News Team. First on the scene. Fifth on facts. That's right. So if you got to be there, would you rather be first on the scene or on the facts? I think getting there fast is important. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's half the battle. We'll also be visiting our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour, plus, of course, our hero of the day. So much to get to, but first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? U.S. Department of Homeland Security still considering an expansion of, of a ban on laptops and other large electronics in airline cabins after Secretary John Kelly spoke to European officials on Tuesday, a Department of Spokesman said. The spokesperson confirmed that Kelly spoke with the European Home Affairs Commissioner and Transport Commissioner on Tuesday, told them that while no expansion was announced Tuesday, that it's still on the table. The spokesperson said that Secretary Kelly affirmed that he will implement any and all measures necessary to secure commercial aircraft flying to the United States, including prohibiting large electronic devices from and or in the passenger cabin if the intelligence and the threat level warrant it. On Tuesday... A JetBlue flight from JFK Airport to California made an emergency landing in Michigan after a lithium battery on a passenger's laptop overheated and caught fire when it was in the luggage rack. Oh boy. The flight crew put out the fire. The emergency crews removed the damaged equipment after landing. No injuries were reported. An airline official says there was no terror threat on the domestic flight, but those kind of things just kind of uh, heighten. Maybe maybe there's a reason to not have laptops right. on what? the airplanes anymore. How? I don't know. How? Just catches fire. It's crazy. But yeah, you could see it. Not necessarily related, but it could be something they kind of lump together when they're thinking about banning laptops because they're thinking about flights in the country also. Yeah. So I'm not sure how that works. You need your laptop. You're you're, you're on business, whatever. You do, just have do to you stow it? it somewhere. But I mean, the whole point is, it, is it an explosive? Is it on the airplane? So even well, then in your is luggage? It, then everybody's just going to start using those... Uh, Tablets or, you know, the tablet mixture that is a laptop tablet. Right. I mean. Yeah. Is there a way around it? I don't know. hmm. So we'll see. Um, Another report. The most deadliest cars that are on the market today. 
Oh, tell me I didn't buy one. Wall Street, or 24-7 Wall Street investigated to come up with a ranking of the safest and the least safe cars on the market today that you can buy. The cars you'll want to drive and the cars you really won't want to drive uh, based on driver death rates. Really? Yeah. So, the deadliest, the Hyundai Ascent. Really? Or Accent. It's a, Why? It's a sedan. It's, a, it's, it's a the small? Most, it's, just... it's probably a small car. Oh, brother. Then you have the Kia Rio, the Scion TC, the Chevrolet Spark, and the Nissan Versa. They're all small cars. This is why you need a Suburban. The safest, a Volkswagen Tiguan. Oh, really? That's a SUV. The Tacoma Double Cab Long Bed, 4x4. The Mazda CX-9. The Jeep Cherokee and the Mercedes-Benz M-Class. All big cars. So the bigger the car, the safer you are. In an accident. That's a rhyme. Got to have something around you to protect you. You just go out there in a go-kart, you're going to get hurt. That's amazing. Okay, good to know. Yeah, keep in mind. But Mini Coop's not on there. I want to get a Mini Coop. My, my kids want me to buy him a, a, a scooter, a Vespa. Mm. And they're like, why won't you buy me a Vespa? And I'm like, because I love you. I don't want you to die. I won't die in a Vespa. Thanks, Dad. Vespa, no, isn't die. that a coffee drink? Hmm. It's a scooter. It's a scooter. From Italy, but I'm not, yeah. Also, a private jet once owned by Elvis Presley has been auctioned off after sitting on a runway in New Mexico for 35 years. Really? The plane sold for $430,000 Saturday at a California event featuring celebrity memorabilia. The buyer not disclosed in the sold note posted Mm -hmm. on the firm's website. The auctioneer said she could not immediately release information about the buyer or the buyer's plans for the plane. The auction house says Elvis designed the interior that has gold-toned woodwork, red velvet seats, and red shag carpeting. But the red 20 or 1962 Lockheed Jetstar has no engine and needs a restoration of its cockpit. Apparently, then, Elvis didn't die. He just flew to New Mexico. I guess. And left his airplane. Why Why would his airplane be in New Mexico? Right, for 35 years. He checked into Area 51. That's in mm-hmm. Nevada. Maybe he parachuted over Roswell. Nevada. Roswell. Oh, Roswell. Yeah. I've been that's, to the Roswell Museum yeah. in New Mexico, and it's, 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 it's strange. <laughs> and I mean that in the best way possible. So, yeah, if you want some... Uh, Crushed velvet red seats and red shag carpeting in your oh, airplane. I love Elvis. It just went off the market. By the way, one of the saddest things to ever watch is go to YouTube and watch Elvis's last performance. Mm. It was sad. Because like not good? It was – yeah, he was – he was – he wasn't doing well. It's not Elvis that everyone remembers. And he tried, you know, but he, he was just mumbling and his – he was making no sense and mm. sad. Final story. Yeah. Hormel. Ah, they make bacon. They sure do. For humans. Nestle Purina makes bacon or begging strips for dogs. Hold on. What is that? Begging? Begging strips. Begging! Because right? they're begging for strips. The bacon and begging's world have generally played nice with each other, but the Purina brand came out with a black label begging strips, <laughs> which hits too close to home for Hormel. In a federal lawsuit filed last week in a Minnesota court, Hormel accused Purina of trademark infringement and false designation for using the black label description to advertise a new line of dog treats. Hormel takes issue with uh, January 2017 launch of Purina's new line of, of bacon-shaped real meat dog 
treats that use the designation black label, the same mark Hormel has used on products since 1963. Wow. Hormel claims that by using the label, Purina has caused and is causing Hormel Foods substantial and irreparable harm and injury. Keep in mind that Beggin strips are with the pet food aisle, right? Yeah, yeah. And they have a huge cartoon dog on the front of the packaging, while the front of the package for, you know, and bacon, it's all on the meat aisle. Yeah. Right? So I don't know how you're going to get your dog food treats mixed up with your yeah, but, actual bacon well, in different parts of the store. Well, but once they're in your once they're in your uh, cart. Maybe the cartoon dog will give it away. Well, unless you just think dogs are cute. Okay. So they really feel this is a problem. Yes. Hmm. So people bacon, dogs begging strips. Yeah. Not, They're going to sue. I don't, I don't see the problem. <laughs> but what do we know, really? Who knows? Um, Have you ever had those bacon strips? Mm. No. no. Are they good? Mm. Well, there you go. <laughs> the funny thing about that sound effect is it doesn't sound very good. Like, it doesn't sound like that was yummy. So what, do, what does it sound like? Like I just took a bullet. Oh, okay. Mm. Okay. Well. Kind of like, yeah. Like you're having gallbladder problem. <sighs> Where do we go? Where do we go? Hey, um, well, one thing we got to get to is uh, police say they identified a woman who robbed a Northeast Ohio video store hmm. because she first gave a clerk her real phone number. A, a video store. What did I say? You said video store. I'm just pointing out that oh. there she went and got a VHS tape. No, I mean, there's videos. Still. A video store, yeah. I think this story is like 20 years old. <laughs> She's got a video. No, it's just in it's 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 retro. Right. It's like it's hip to go to the video store now. Is that what it is? Pick yourself up hmm. a video for your VCR. It's so desirable to have to fuss with the tracking throughout the entire movie. <laughs> But do you remember? Then discs came out, and then all of a sudden your thing would skip. So yeah, you'd go to Redbox, and they, you'd, they'd skip. You got to stream it. Do you remember when they told you it was time to put the discs in the toilet, and then you just flush the toilet, and it cleans it? No. Yeah, I remember taking the VH, the VHS head cleaner, and it had a little hole at the bottom of it, and you'd have to squirt these little droplets into yep. it. Yeah, yeah you needed. And that the, was going to clean your VCR. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those were the days. Well, uh, none of that has anything to do with this story, but a video um, <laughs> store robber gave the clerk her real phone number. Akron police issued a warrant for aggravated robbery after tracing the phone number to a 41-year-old woman. A store employee says the woman walked into the store on Tuesday afternoon, shot for a DVD. She then approached the checkout counter, gave her number to the employee to look up her account. Hmm. Busted. The employee says the woman then put a note on the counter stating, I have a gun. And that, and that number I gave you wasn't real. That's not my home number. Reports show she demanded money with her hand inside her sweatshirt as if she Ooh, had a weapon. Like on the Flintstones. Mm-hmm. Reports say the employee gave the woman an undisclosed amount of money and she fled the store. Mm. Busted. At a video store. And then they just... Pulled up her account and drove over to her house and yeah. arrested her. Well, okay. Good police work. If it was a VHS tape, the lady would have – the cashier would have just said, look, you don't need to get violent. I'll give you the video for free. Like, we don't want it. Just take it. Take these videos. She she got away with money. And 
it didn't dawn on her that she'd already given her name away, her phone number. That's why I'm very leery about these these places now that want your phone number. Right. So I always give them Terry's number. Hey. It's a lot easier. Don't do that. I always say, here's here's in my number. Call my producer. Just give them your number, but do like the last two numbers just off. Yeah. By one. Did Have you been getting a lot of strange calls from people that I've been meeting? No, but I have been getting strange calls, so maybe... I don't know if they're from people that are like that know you or. I've been giving your number you. out like crazy. It's more like we have a great credit card offer for you. Like, oh yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I gave a credit card company your name. Oh, did too. you? Great, thanks. When I was my, getting my loan, my wife didn't know until recently. I told her about this that if you just keep listening to that those automated messages, there's usually an option to opt out. Oh, of really? ever being called by those people again. Don't she you have to wait that. like three days? Pretty much of listening. Yeah. But it's worth it because then they just call again, but with a different number. Yeah. I don't get a lot of people on my – because I don't give my phone number out very often. Mm. So I'm not getting – but we don't have a home phone anymore. So I actually use my old phone number when I go into any of those stores. What's your phone number? I give my old phone number and it works. You also need to listen. Like if you call your internet provider or your cable provider, you'll be on hold and you know, you're listening to this nice music. Exactly. And then you hear something that makes you kind of do a double take. Like if you prefer not for us to not sell your information to different companies for promotional purposes, be sure and let our salesperson know. It's like, what? Huh? So that, yeah, that's so, why I'm getting all these calls. A, now you got to go by. Now you got to go hit the sales number before you hit the customer service number to tell the salespeople we don't want that. Then we'll get back to customer service. And then how about the one where mine was in a loop with one of my doctors? I kept trying to get a hold of a doctor, but it was a loop where you'd try to you'd press his number and it would then send you back to the beginning of the list. So maddening. My I almost wife died. My wife is infamous for getting the collections agency after her, but wow. by no fault of her own. She's an accountant. Like she was a student, had some teeth work done, some dental work done, and, uh, you know, the practice went under and she had already paid, but the collection agency uh. just kept coming after her because they, to you know, according to their records, she never paid. Yeah. I've heard that story a million times. <laughs> How, how are her teeth now? They're beautiful. Excellent. Well done. Okay, we will take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking uh, about decoding body language in an online world. Are you uh, at a disadvantage when we're not talking face-to-face anymore? Probably. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. While the brain is developing capacity for online social networking, neural circuits for one-on-one personal communication are beginning to atrophy. Social intelligence is diminishing. One result is that people are losing their ability to read the nuances of body language and facial expression. This impacts personal interactions no matter where or with whom they occur. Communication expert and returning guest Professor Leslie Shore joins us. She shares uh, tips for interpreting body language and facial expression to regain our our, uh, diminishing social intelligence. Leslie, thank you again for being with us. Oh, my pleasure, Matt. This is scary, right? I mean, if all of a sudden we are losing our ability 
to read social cues and nuances, that that seems like, you know, that's debilitating. It, well, it is debilitating. And, and those who uh, generationally grew up in a situation where they were reading body language, uh, Gen X, boomers, veterans, those folks have no problem with it, even though uh, they are using a lot of social media and doing a lot of texting and that type of thing. You can't unlearn what you learned so young. It, the, the issue right now, I believe, is in the, gen, the millennial generation and the one that is coming up after it that has had all these wonderful electronics and, and ways of communicating other than face-to-face, and that's their preferred method, and they've had it essentially since, uh, you know, in utero practically. Right. And, I mean, a lot of it I think we just take for granted, um, but it's, there's an art to it. There's a science to it, and um, I guess, in a sadly, what it's going to be is not something that we just do naturally with each other. It sounds like we're going to need to start giving classes. That's exactly what the case is, and and one of the one of the things that I want to put forth is that as we get literally these these children and teenagers in high school and in grade school, that they actually are not only just given a course, but that teachers actually within whatever discipline they are in work with how to decode body language, how to see how a person is standing, how to look at a person and know what their mood is. And it needs to be in every discipline that we're, we're, we're talking about so that if they don't get it at home, they will get it at school. Hmm. And do, do we learn it? The same because like parents don't sit down and teach this either, I guess. It's no. just we are naturally we, we're around all of this nonverbal so much that we can, I, I guess, learn the lesson when he rolls his eyes that way and then st- he'll storm off in five minutes. Those two <laughs> things go together. Right. Correct. I mean, in a, in a normal household where cell phones have not become so ubiquitous that you sit down at the dinner table together, hopefully, but everyone's on their cell phone. If, if, if uh, dinner time is a uh, non-electronic time, then there is a chance to learn while you're growing what body language and facial expressions and tone are actually saying to you uh, above and beyond the words that are are being said and and that to me is uh honestly Matt the saddest thing for me is to see a family um at out for at a restaurant for dinner and all of them have their noses in in their cell mm. phones so true though and i mean i see it with my own family like really we will we will come from a hike where we went out on the hike because we wanted to get our kids away from the phones and the minute we get back <laughs> everyone goes to the living room or whatever and just everyone sits on their phones and nobody's talking and then they're taking all of the pictures they took on the hike and they're posting them everywhere but I sat, I sit and I think, yeah, it was the dinner table 
or, or and and even like family like meetings when we when we'd hang out together. There's these special moments that I guess would be ideal to to recreate in our lives, so that our kids are forced to to deal with with this body language. <laughs> exactly, like, and you go, and but I you have to it. force the situation. Like you have to, the phones are off. Like you were calling it a tech free moment. Exactly. And and a great story about a tech-free moment was uh, someone let me know that something that I had said on a previous radio interview really hit home. And so for Christmas dinner, this was a grandmother and a grandfather. They held out a um, a, a basket and said, "Cell phones in here, please." Yeah. And every half hour, um, we'll give it back to you for five minutes, and you can do what you wish. And what happened is throughout the evening, all of a sudden, no one was reaching uh, for the cell phones anymore. They actually were enjoying each other so much, they didn't want to break it up. And I think these are the kinds of things that we can do in in our more uh, adult position to make sure that, that this upcoming generation and the millennial generation really does understand um, how to read the people in front of them. And businesses are already beginning to feel the effect of that deficit. Hmm. And um, I, I guess, so talk about the, because you, you mentioned body language, but there's also, there's body language, there's facial expression, there's tone, mm-hmm. there's proximity of the body to, you know, uh, moving closer to you, moving further away from you. Talk about what we are losing when it comes to um, these, the use of technology, what is it that's being lost specifically? What's being lost really is the ability to create relationship quickly and legitimately, and uh, if if you if your if your proximity to the other person is too close and they start to step away, and you keep on going closer. You're not reading body language well. And whatever it is that you are going to say, they may not listen to because you're not paying attention to what they're saying to you in their body language. So proximity is really important. How much you gesture or understand their gestures in terms of if they're over-gesturing, there's something not quite right, or if they're under-gesturing, there's something that is is probably, I won't say nefarious, but definitely negative or being hidden from you in terms of of the uh, conversation. So if you're paying attention to that, you can actually understand what is happening, uh, redirect, understand whether there should be a relationship or how to get around and um, how to get around it and maybe uh, use a different perspective to get into having a good conversation with this with this person. But you know, they always say ninety three percent of communication is nonverbal. Yeah. And that's what we have to pay attention to. I mean, ninety-three percent, and that does so. That's the tone. That's facial expression. That's the timing of the speech. I mean, there's so yep. much going on. Is um, is there a way to make it up online? I mean, we hear about emojis and emoticons. 
Is is it realistic that you could emoticon every nuance that our faces make? No. Yeah. It, 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 simply speaking, no. Um, the 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 reality is that online is wonderful for a lot of things, but it is not great for creating deep relationship. You can start a relationship. You can have a wonderful, wonderful conversation in terms of um, a wonderful conversation in terms of uh, choice word choice and um, the critical thinking that you may be using. Uh, that rarely happens in a text, unfortunately. Right, right. Um, <laughs> But things can start there, and and we know um, that even my parents, who were separated by the war before they even got engaged, they had letters going back and forth, and believe me, uh, a 54-year marriage is a testament to the fact that there's a lot that you can do with a written word. Yeah. But... Texting is not the way. Emailing can be. But, you know, Matt, there is nothing, nothing in this world like being face-to-face or being on the phone at least so you can understand the pacing, understand the tone, understand uh, the silences, the pauses. All of that not only tells you a lot about what that person is saying, but about the person and about the relationship that you're building. Hmm. There's nothing like it. Is I guess then uh, these younger generations they it's it's weird because they may not even they may not even pick up the cues. They they may not even know some of the the actors, the early actors. Like I remember, like Laurel and Hardy, but. Um, Man, who were the who did who did who's on first? Was that Abbott Laurel and Costello? Abbott and Costello. I remember watching those every Saturday on TV, and yep. and I remember thinking, I remember learning so much from their facial expression. Oh gosh, don't yes. you? And it's it, honestly, it is so empowering to think of something as simple as that, where you you derived joy from a facial expression. And pleasure from their facial expressions where today, I mean, I I have kids that are watching people play video games and they're watching them play the video games on their phone. And I'm thinking, what are you – you can't see their faces. You just see the video game and I think, what are we missing? And then I wonder if it's just me being an old, you know, an old coot. Uh, no, it is not you being an old coot. I, I, and if you are, I am. Therefore, no, it's not. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I think what we're really missing is the nuance. And when we talk about relationships, and, and especially when we're talking about with uh, spouses, you know, boyfriends, girlfriends, kids, when we're talking about relationships that we want to have for a lifetime, for for these folks that are growing up without understanding the nuances of body language, there is a lot more conflict that they will have to go through and resolve because they're not picking these things up uh, as they would have in the past 
if they weren't so constantly tied to to the technology. Yeah. And 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 as I said before, in business this is already beginning to rear its ugly head with clients telling um, uh, sales supervisors, hey, your person just ran roughshod over me with their agenda. They weren't paying attention uh, to what we were saying or what we weren't saying. They, they, need some, they need some help. And that really, you know, coming back to what we were talking about, that really is, is where we're at with this upcoming generation. So true. Let's take a break, Leslie, come back and continue the discussion, find out what we can do to be teaching these skills to our kids, our younger adults as well, as they get ready for the the workforce. We're speaking again with uh, Professor Leslie Shore, who is also the author of the book, Listen to Succeed, How to Identify and Overcome Barriers to Effective Listening. And uh, she's currently, that book is being used in four universities and in businesses and nonprofits around the country. Stick with us, helping you understand how to decode body language. Up next. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is Professor Leslie Shore. She is a communication expert and is uh, sharing tips on decoding body language in an online world. It really is a problem. Uh, we may be debilitating the next generation as they aren't able to learn these uh, the cues, the, the, the simple body language cues, the eye rolling. But picking up on tone and some of the things that you didn't even know you were learning – but you were learning because you were devoting so much attention to the people that were talking to you as you were growing up. Um, we're honored again to have you. Uh, Leslie's been on the show before. Leslie, thank you for your time. Oh, my pleasure, Matt. This is such a, I think, such an important thing to learn. Is it, I mean, I think naturally our bodies are, uh, we're, we're born and I think just it's natural for us to want to learn to pick up on all the social cues, right? I mean, if we can, we do it naturally. It's hardwired into us from literally caveman times. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, when when you don't have the uh, uh, a language that's verbal, you actually have a body language, and you also way 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 back then, uh, the folks who were doing all that hunting and all that stuff, they were looking at the body language of the animals <laughs> that they were right. hunting. And and so it is hardwired into us to want to understand, but it's something that, as they always say, you know, it takes practice. And unfortunately, it's the practice portion that is now missing. Hmm. And I guess uh, talk to us about how we how we could help our kids to. I mean, I guess the obvious is get off the phone enough and pay attention. Um, other, things, <laughs> other things we could be doing with our children and even our young adults that, are, that, are, that need to learn these things. Well, there are two things, yes. One is, uh, as the adult, we need to get off the phone and, and be with and be present to um, our kids, teens, and young adults. The other thing, though, is also literally start today. Start setting a boundary that when we sit down for dinner, that's it. 
Um, there are no cell phones. There's no answering cell phones. There's no television. We are going to be with each other and be present. And what happens over a period of time, uh, Matt, with that is that that they will begin to actually see, hey, you know, Dad doesn't look as energized as he normally is. I wonder what that is about. And the question gets asked. And when they find out that they were right in in that that they figure it was instinctual, it's actually reading the body language, when they find out they're right, then they get on the path of understanding how powerful body language is, and they'll want to do that more. Hmm. No, I think that's – and, I mean, maybe that's part of it is use those cues – Use those cues. So as you're sitting there and you have time to talk, use the cues to to get people talking. Son, you seem really happy today. I notice you're smiling a lot more. You seem chipper. Tell me what's going on and actually induce them to to share more from their own body language you're picking up. Absolutely. And, and it won't be one of those, oh, it's nothing, because you've actually called out something that they will feel so good that you noticed. And and one of the things that we have to understand about um our our youngsters is that just just like adults when someone notices that something is uh either is off in a negative way or you're just busting at the seams and no one's paying attention and no one notices that you feel invisible. And one of the things about body language is in being able to pick up on whatever kind of body language it is, the fact that you bring something up as a result makes them feel very visible, makes them feel that they matter, and that they are valued as a member of either uh, the family or the team or whatever it is. It might be. And that's why, to your point, actually uh, saying, hey, I notice X, tell me what's going on, really brings to the forefront not only finding out what's going on, but it is teaching uh, that child or young adult, oh, this is what I can do. This is how I can use body language to read what is going on. Man, that's great advice. And um, I guess, too, you could always do activities, turn down the volume on the – we've done that where we turn down the volume on the the show The Bachelor and we, we all pretend like we're making up the lines for what's being said on that show. And the lines are very easy to make up on The Bachelor. Um, oh, my gosh. And on The Bachelorette. Oh, they're horrible. I know. Right I know. And so – but you turn it down and you can watch their facial expression and – I mean it's really a fun – there's fun growth and development that can take place when you start paying attention to the nuances. Absolutely. And, and Matt, that is a really, that is an awesome exercise that isn't an exercise to do with your kids because not only are you reading body language, but you're having fun. Yeah. And they are using their critical thinking skills and body language decoding skills to come up with a funny line or whatever. And at the end of it, everybody is just happy. 
Totally. And that's really a wonderful thing to be able to do. No, powerful stuff. I agree, Leslie. And it is like you're saying. It's about relationships. It's about being together. It's about family. And uh, that's why we appreciate having you on the show and, and picking your brain as a communication expert. Again, Leslie Shore is her name, and her book is Listen to Succeed, How to Identify and Overcome Some of your uh, the Biggest Issues in Communication especially decoding body language in an online world. We, uh, we appreciate Leslie. We'll take a break, come back, visit two great communicators, uh, Spencer and Jerem, as we uh, get ready to meet and find out what's coming up on BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us, folks. We know, for heaven's sakes, we've been playing this song all day. Hey, it's National Hole in the Bucket Day. And uh, so we are going to go down to two experts that know what to do when there's a hole in the bucket and uh, see if they can solve this problem for us. Down to Spencer and Jerem at BYU Sports Nation. Hello, gentlemen. Bucket, man. What do you What do you do when there's a hole in the bucket? Because Henry seems like a wuss that just keeps wanting Liza to fix it. That's a, got a man up. It's a fantastic point you bring up, Matt. You know what I mean? Buy a new bucket. Get a bucket, man. Put it on your bucket list. <laughs> Not to get too hey, aggressive. Why is it a bucket list? I don't know. It is. But where else? Well, where else are you going to put your desirable goals to achieve? On a you know, you know. In the bucket. In the bucket. Yeah, and what if there's a hole in that bucket? Then you got a problem. And then there's a song that never ends. Mercy. In your bucket, Eliza, Eliza. <laughs> We've been listening to the song all day. Why? Because Jeff would just you keeps playing it. To that? Jeff, Jeff loves it's his favorite song. I just listened to promos of Diddy Dental. <laughs> hey, oh, I got a question for you. This is huge. Yapper Zapper. I'm. Sh- I'm. Sh- do you like all of our vendors? Those are funny. Yeah. yeah. You guys need some of those for your show. A Yapper Zapper or Diddy Dental Promo? You need both. <laughs> They're both products. They're great products. Is Jeff <laughs> is Jeff voicing that, by the way? No, not Jeff. It's not Jeff doing Diddy Dental? No, we, we Jeff doesn't do anything but just run my board. That's not true. <laughs> it's, it's, it's Ron Brokaw. Have you heard that we have Ron Brokaw on our show now? Tom, Bro- Tom Brokaw's uh, second cousin, twice Diddy removed. Diddy Dental. Yeah. The greatest generation. It's it, yeah. So, Jeff doesn't voice any of those because Je- all Jeff does is run the board. Mm. Wrong. Oh boy. Hey, okay. Here's the deal. I don't know if you saw this because this is baseball news, and I know you guys aren't too into sports. But um, <laughs> what? Okay. There was a bat. There was a fight royale uh, between really? uh, the, the Giants and the Nationals. Oh, we talked about this yesterday. Did you? Matt, see, I was on sick. the show. Just I was with sick. You. I I was pulling a gallbladder moment, and um, but here's the deal. But okay, so when the bench clears and Harper gets beaned and he goes after the pitcher, uh, what it seems like there's there's certain protocols and etiquettes that need to be lived up to. Um, okay. <laughs> it seems like Buster Posey is the, the brawling etiquette of baseball. <laughs> the apparently uh, Buster Posey didn't back up his quarterback, <laughs> and he just okay. kind of okay. Okay, so what's the protocol? I 
what's the protocol? I mean, like, what's got to sprint out there and do something? That's you got to tackle Harper. Before. I watched it again last night to watch Buster Posey. Yeah. I didn't think that he'd stayed back as I think he thought it was going to be one on one for a sec. Oh yeah, let him let him have their one on one moment. What, I think it took him a while to realize what was going on because okay. he he did jog out there once. <laughs> yeah, he sauntered. Yeah, stuff hit the fan. Then he got out there. Right? I don't think it was as bad as people think. Okay, because I guess it's blowing up online, huh? Oh, people are going after Buster Posey super hard. But, I mean, honestly, and then uh, who was it that made a really good point? Um, the catcher, oh, no, Jake Arietta did a whole thing about the fact that there's a brawl etiquette. He said, if two guys want to go go see each other, let them be in the middle, let them throw some punches, then break it up. I don't like to see any sucker punches. I don't like, I don't think in the heat of the battle, if you're getting hit uh, on the hip with ninety with a 98-mile-an-hour fastball, then you should be able to go out and, and see somebody. I think the umpires handled it well, but it's basically, he thinks there needs to be a little hockey moment. <laughs> where, I would love that. Where you just, you just allow the two people to go at it for a minute. What do you yeah. think? Do no, you think a minute, I think, it, like would, I think it would solve a lot of problems yeah. and the sucker punches would go away yeah. and all of that stuff. The sucker punches are not the issue. It's what's going to happen. I, I mean, they played the next day and there was nothing there. Mm. But the next time Hunter Strickland pitches against Bryce Harper, oh. Oh. there's going to be something. But a ninety right? and the guy's throwing a ninety eight mile an hour ball at you. It really well, is dangerous. And I actually agree with Bryce Harper's logic when he said I don't understand why it's even a thing because he was Hunter Strickland was mad about something that happened three years prior in the first round of the National League playoffs when Bryce Harper admired a couple of his home runs because Hunter Strickland (laughs) had admired him. Yes, when he had gotten oh yes exactly. So Bryce stared down Hunter Strickland as he was going around the bases three years ago. The Giants won the World Series, and so Bryce Harper's like. Why does he even care? I'd be looking at my ring on every walk back to right. my own dugout. Yeah. I love how juvenile it is. You looked at me. <laughs> but you maybe, flipped your bat. But maybe that's it. Maybe you, you have a little <laughs> hockey brawl, you let, but you don't let every, any other player that gets involved, you fine them. But you let the well, two aggrieved people go at it, and they met out their own. That'd be nice. The the suspensions are ridiculous. Yeah. Because they give a pitcher, albeit a relief pitcher, a five-game suspension. That yeah. is different than finding oh. a player in the field. No, totally. It's totally different. Yeah, Harper's out four games. This pitcher's out six games. Yeah. So and they've appealed crazy. them, so they're not suspended yet. But. Okay. So um, have you guys ever had a brawl like that on your show? Because I know it's yeah. intense. Oh man, we have Ver- whipped verbally. out some vicious rhetoric <laughs> and destroyed each here's, other's here's how you know. with our vocals. <laughs> if you were if you were here, if we don't talk during the break, it's when it's on. Really? <laughs> but if we you somebody's and been that's offended. happened probably three or four times. Wow. Where it's we had a conversation and we were both, I guess, personally invested in the subject mm-hmm. for some reason. And then it got quiet in between. And then it's quiet during the break. Well, that's got to be weird for the camera people. All your, it's all your crew. There's, yeah, there's two feet separating. So. <laughs> you can just hear his breathing. <sighs> that's scary. What's on your show today that Who won't cares? bring conflict? I was thinking about those awkward moments. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be 58 minutes of awkward. Uh, now it's really awkward. Yeah. So we're asking all of BYU Sports Nation to put themselves in the top editor's shoes 
And if they were producing the show for the year in review of BYU Sports, what would be the headline story? What's the biggest story in the year of BYU Athletics? Plus, uh, did you know there's a former BYU quarterback who pitched in the majors? Mm-mm. Ryan Hancock. Now you do. Ryan Hancock. Ryan Hancock. Yeah, okay. He, he started five games for the California Angels back That's in the cool. Dizzle. The Diddy. The Diddy. Dizzle. For the Angels. Yeah. Angels. So he'll join us. Plus, Brock Hale. Maybe the hottest bat in the Cougar lineup, which is top 10 nationally in offense. He will join us from Stanford Ooh. as the Batcats get ready for the NCAA regionals tomorrow. And Yale Sports Athletics mm-hmm. gives a percent chance for every team to make it to the Super Bowl. Oh, yes. What? The Yale brethren have released their <laughs> analytics. What percent chance did Yale give the other wise? Excellent. Oh, I love it when you guys pick up your game like that and you bring it to a whole new level. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. We do it for you, diggity dog, Matt. <laughs> Thank you. From Diddy Dental. All right, guys, go do your show. Knock them dead and don't fight. Just keep the peace. Bring love. Not war. You're going to want to listen to their show in four minutes, folks. Four minutes from right now. Uh, a couple of other stories for you that we, we just got to get to. Uh, this this has got to be totally shocking to a family. All of a sudden, um, imagine your, your house, a married couple returned from a supermarket to find their house covered in scaffolding. They have no idea why. Honey, did you order some scaffolding? Are we painting the house? The pensioners said they had no idea where the work was supposed to take place because no contractor's name or sign was left on the house. They said they were left shocked and surprised at where did it all come from and are waiting for the scaffolding company to arrive to tell them how the framework came to appear on their house. The couple who have lived in their house for 30 years have contacted at least one local firm and have said that the work hadn't been done by them. As I pulled up in the driveway, I saw the scaffolding and I thought, where are we? Because we uh, we were at home, but the scaffolding hadn't been there when we left. I I was just surprised, shocked. What do you you know what though? You'd think they would come back to reclaim their scaffolding. Well, it's got to yeah. be expensive. Well, then they they went into their house and they saw two people that looked exactly like them. What? You didn't read that part of the story? No, and the house was being built brand new. It was a new house. It was their house 30 years ago. I'm a little scared that right now. weird. That gave me the chills. <sighs> well, we wish them the best of luck. I wonder if the, that younger, the couple, the new couple they met was them 30 years younger. Because that would be so strange. Yeah. Do you ever think you would hear a bongo in a horror soundtrack? Uh, yeah, that's where I love to hear them. Hmm. I love a good bongo in the soundtrack of a horror movie. Hey, and finally, our hero of the day is a man on a mission to cut grass for those in need across the country, mowing lawns through Kansas City right now. The man is on a mission to mow grass in all 50 states, and he stopped in Kansas City on Monday. Rodney Smith Jr. started an organization that mows lawns for single mothers, veterans, and older Americans. He based, he's based out of Huntsville, Alabama, and he says he got the idea a couple of years ago when he saw an older man struggling to cut his own grass. 
And he says the mission is so rewarding. A small idea can change the world. I'm just cutting grass. I'm able. Uh, I'm able. I'm able to help people who are not so able. Smith said it means a lot, especially for a lot of elderly people who can't afford to get their grass cut because they're on fixed incomes. So when we uh, when we come in, we cut their grass for free, and it makes their day. While in Kansas City, he mowed the yard of the Northland widow whose husband served in the Korean War. His organization encourages young men to mow fifty yards where they live. What a cool guy! So go go check that out. Uh, go find the man uh, mowing across the country. We'll put a post of it on our Twitter page as well. That's the show, my friends. You know, we're here to help you uh, see the good in the world. And if you can, turn your life to be the good in the world. Uh, really, consider yourself blessed when you think of everything else that's going on that uh, that you could be a part of. Boy, we got it good. We'll take it. Uh, that's it. That's the show. We'll be back again tomorrow. More ideas, more information to help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier lives. Until tomorrow, folks, make it a great one. Let's take care of each other.